2: This was all John Hammond's dream. Ah! Hold on to your (laughs) Seriously? Well, we're back.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 269th episode of the Jurassic Park podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. In today's episode, we're going to dive into some quick news regarding Jurassic World Velocicoaster from Universal Orlando. And then, after that, we have the Jurassic Park Book Club featuring analysis of the second, the third of the book. Ben, the host of the segment, is joined today by Jurassic Dave, Stephen Ray Morris, and myself. The three of us uh, joined Ben to chat about the middle portion of the novel, which is the tour through to the fifth iteration. So hopefully you guys have read along. Uh, This section is really, really wild. Some fun, fun stuff in there. And uh, yeah, like I said, I hope you've read along because I think this portion of the book might be my favorite portion and the most fun in my eyes. So... Uh, we'll get to that, but uh, that's not all. We do get to hear from some of our friends in the community with their thoughts and their feelings on that second portion of the novel there, and uh, that's that's what I'm always excited about. I really love hearing from, you know, the friends uh, of the podcast, the listeners, fellow podcasters, and uh, everybody else out there who might be reading along with us. So remember, if you are reading along with us and you uh, want to send in your thoughts and feelings on each segment of the novel, you can send those over to Jurassic Park Book Club at gmail.com. You can send over your emails if you want to write something down. You can, but we really prefer some audio recordings. So send over your audio recordings. So, like I said, we will be including everybody's thoughts in uh, in all of these wrap up episodes. And we do have one more wrap up episode. Uh, for Jurassic Park the novel by My- Michael Crichton so that's uh, that's exciting to finally get to the last one but um, that's going to be airing on May 10th and uh, it will feature discussion from the fifth iteration all the way through to the end of the novel and yes there is certainly a lot to discuss there a lot of uh, really interesting and fun differences from the film so so be sure to let us know what you think and uh, like I said get those in ahead of time ahead of May 10th that's when the episode's gonna come out so please get them in ahead of that typically like these Saturday before the release of the episode but before we get started I'd like to take care of some quick business So over on YouTube last week I did a live stream. And the big news from last week, which I said is going to be in the news segment this week, is uh, the Velocicoaster. So I discussed all of that information, as well as uh, we showed off some fun new uh, Jurassic Park uh, sneakers coming from Reebok. So we had a lot of fun discussion around those two things and so many other things. So please check out that live stream from last week. Of course, this week we will have another live stream this Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and uh and i think we should also have a toy hunt uh over on the channel this week so please keep your eyes peeled for both of those videos but this is a very packed episode so why don't we go ahead and get this episode kicked off with a little bit of jurassic news from around the world
4: 18 minutes and your company catches up on 10 years of research
1: access rate. program access security These pictures were taken in hospital in Costa Rica 48 hours ago. I don't
5: want to jump to any conclusions, but look.
1: Boy, we hate being right all the time.
5: But
6: today, I guarantee it.
0: So today here in the news, I did want to update everybody. I do not know if you've been following along with Jurassic World Velocicoaster's progress down at uh, Universal Orlando's Islands of Adventure. But uh, Velocicoaster is very, very close to being finished there, and uh, they finally announced an opening date, and that is June. 10th, So Velocicoaster will be opening in Florida on June 10th. That is a project that we have been following so, so closely here on the podcast, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, talking about it on the Jurassic Wire or discussing it in our live streams over on YouTube. But we have been following this thing so closely, and uh, I kind of uh, predicted that it would be opening in June. But um, it's it's June 10th, we finally know that date, and I am so, so excited. Um, I was surprised that it wasn't June 11th knowing that date in Jurassic history, but uh, June 10th it is, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be a very, very big opening, um, even, even with COVID and pandemic measures in theme parks and stuff like that it's it's still probably going to bring a lot of people and uh hopefully everybody can stay safe and still be excited about a really really world class uh launch coaster that's coming to Florida. It's really impressive. So if you haven't seen anything about it, please check out our live stream from last week. We have a bunch of information, a bunch of pictures, all kinds of fun stuff regarding that opening. And there is a trailer, so I will be sure to include that in our show notes for this episode as well. So you can take a look at the ride see it in action there's point of view uh imagery and stuff like that in the trailer and uh it looks like there's a lot of cool stuff inside so we're, we're gonna be getting um small-ish animatronic-y uh velociraptor heads it looks like with some blinking eyes and maybe the head shake a little bit not too sure there it looks very reminiscent of what we've been seeing out uh and i i think it's in china somewhere um jurassic world the movie exhibition has that very similar thing going on um, with the raptor heads in the big crates and stuff like that where they're poking through with the you know the same thing we saw in jurassic world we've been hearing a lot of uh, audio from the attraction that chris pratt uh is uh doing the voice of Owen Grady inside the attraction as well. We got a look at the queue uh, via some pictures that were released this week, and, man, it looks really cool. So there's a lot of fun stuff to take a look at. So, again, head to our uh, show notes for the video, and also you'll find in there the live stream from last week. So thank you so much. And that is it for the news. Now it's time to enjoy the Jurassic Park Book Club.
1: Oh, there it is. There it is.
7: I wish Dr. Grant were here. He'd write the most amazing article about this. You need
3: that guy?
8: You
7: got your nerd book.
1: I appreciate that.
7: It was kind of preachy.
1: Yeah, Sheffield Campfire Stories with my uncle.
7: No. Did you read Malcolm's book? (sighs) Just the parts they didn't like.
2: I read your book. And then my teacher told me about this other book by Manning Backer. And
0: he I read both of your books. I like the first one more.
9: it's
4: two things that we have in common. The big head ducked down toward the mud. Tim looked back at Dr. Grant and Dr. Malcolm in the rear car. Their faces were tense as they stared forward through the windshield. The huge head raised back up, jaws open, and then stopped by the side windows. In the glare of lightning, They saw the beady, expressionless reptile eye moving in the socket. It was looking in the car.
10: Hello and welcome to the second episode. Today I'm joined by three main contributors to the Jurassic Park community. Jurassic Dave 93, Stephen Ray Morris and Brad Jost. Dave does awesome Jurassic Park toy and collectible photography over on Instagram, whilst Stephen and Brad separately host their own excellent Jurassic podcasts. Stephen with See Jurassic Right, and Brad with the Jurassic Park podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining me. How are you all doing?
5: Good. Thanks for having us.
10: Yeah. Okay, excited, man. So before (laughs) we dive into the book, uh, I I asked my previous guests on episode one, um, I just wanted to know how were you introduced to Jurassic Park in general? And what was your uh, what was the when was the first time you read the novel? And what came first movie or book? Dave? um uh,
8: i was introduced to the whole franchise through the kenner toys i didn't know what it was i didn't know what the book or the film coming out and my grandmother actually gifted some toys to me easter in like 93 and that's what sparked my imagination with this whole franchise you know like what is this place what where dinosaurs and man are together you know and you know looking at the toys on the back of the, the cards there. Um, just, you know, get my imagination going as to, you know, why does Alan Grant have a nuclear bomb and nets and <laughs> baby dinosaurs with him and everything. And um, yeah, uh, as far as the book or the film, I did see the film first. Of course it wasn't till much later, maybe like 95. Um, so it was a little bit too scary, I guess, for my parents to let me sit in the theater being seven years old or something at the time. But um, yeah, I saw the movie first. Um, and I th- believe I checked the book out of the library when I was young, but it was just way over my head. I think I tried to read it and didn't absorb anything. But uh, that's my early, you know, earliest memories of the franchise and stuff as far as the movie, the book, and the toys, of course, go.
10: Oh, cool. I mean, that's cool because, I mean, certainly from what I've seen of the Kenner toys or what I can remember of them, um, some of the uh, toys in there, like the juvenile T-Rex that we got as a toy, Obviously, we never got in the film, so it's quite interesting because it um, makes me wonder if they were referencing the book before the you know they knew enough about the film um, and its precise details. What about you, Stephen? Well, it's funny because
5: I actually read the Lost World book first out of the two books after seeing Jurassic Park and the Lost World. It's very, it's I don't I don't really understand what the what the. You know, motivation there was, but I still have my copy of The Lost World my dad gave me, which has the swear words penciled out or penned out, (laughs) and I don't know. I think maybe my dad thought that the second book was, like, because it's more of, like, a Lost, I mean, literally a Lost World vibes, like, literally kind of a Lost Island kind of vibes, you know, more wild and things like that, whereas, I mean, the Dress Park book is, like, the movie, so I, I would just, yeah, I don't really know, understand the logic there, but I mean, I saw the movie in theaters. You know, obviously, I was already a big dinosaur kid. It fell in love, and then, yeah, just kept the just kept the fan train going. I mean, had the juvenile T Rex. I mean, we'll we'll get to it, but yeah, thinking about the Kenner toy, truly, it was like that is to me one of the most iconic book elements. So when I was a kid and got the juvenile Rex, I never got any of the bigger Rexes, the Red Rex or anything like that. So. To me, like the juvenile T-Rex is like such a prize of like when I think of um, the toys, but also in relation to the books and stuff. But yeah, it's weirdly read the Lost World book first and then read Jurassic Park after that.
10: Yeah, that must have really thrown you off as well, particularly with the Lost World and the Lost World movie being quite different to each other.
5: Maybe that was the logic, because my dad was like, well, the Dress Park book, I mean, the Dress Park book is not like the movie, but you know, the Lost World book is not anything like the the movie at all, so I wonder yeah. if that was
10: his logic there, so very funny. What about you, Brad? I know on the preview episode, we touched on this.
0: Yeah, that's right, we probably did. I, I feel like I've mentioned it from time to time, but um, actually the book was like my first introduction to this universe. Uh, I, was, I was young, so I didn't read it or anything, but Um, I just have like vivid memories of like, I don't know if it was like summertime or something, but my mom was out reading on the porch and reading some scary book that she would like come over and tell me like, uh, really, really creepy parts of this book every now and then it turned out to be Jurassic Park. And I was, I was just a huge dinosaur, you know, nerd from the start anyway, but, uh, it was something that enticed me. And then I saw the movie, uh, in 93 and got the toys and I never had the, um, the uh the the juvenile t-rex toy until i like got like some facebook uh haul in in the past few years like i just got a bunch of dinosaurs oh. and uh that was in there but uh, it's a it's a fun little toy i like that thing
10: yeah i think it's fair to say we, we all keep our eyes out on facebook and ebay for, <laughs> for anything that we've, we've not got yeah. we've not seen <laughs> that's cool right okay so well the first where we left off in episode 1 is we just uh, got to the island um, the first helicopter had arrived. All the guests had come out of the, the main building uh, and they were greeted by Tim and Lex. They'd just arrived for the weekend, so that's where we pick up. Um, Lex and Tim's parents are getting a divorce, so they've been they've been flown over to the island. Um, and the first thing that that, I, that struck me reading this part of the book is that Lex starts whining straight away. <laughs> she's, she's straight in there saying that she needs to go. Uh, the other thing that hit me was that grant is referenced as wearing a hawaiian shirt which is quite funny to me because nedry wears a hawaiian shirt in the movie so that threw me off a little bit so dave i wonder what your first thoughts are of meeting lex and tim and how the story takes us back into the main building and goes through all of the different facilities
8: um yeah you're saying lex didn't bother me as much maybe because i'm a dad i'm just used to that whining as part of life (laughs) um (laughs) But yeah, it's really confusing to me, um, being you know s- such a fan of the movie, how the ages are swapped and stuff, and trying to picture Tim as older and and Lex as the young whiny one. Um, but yeah, just uh, what was going on there? Um, the anger between uh, Gennaro and Hammond over the kids coming and stuff. Was something that really stuck out to me. Um, it's just totally a different character from the movie. You know, the beloved John Hammond from the film. Um, but yeah, I just I, I like this reading this time around for the book here um, because there's some parts of it in here that just seem like quaint to me that when I read it when I was younger it seemed like so high tech um, <laughs> yeah. like what's going on with uh, the way the computers are described it's almost like like magic you know like it's written in a way like oh, computers are so new no one's going to know how they work so we'll just say that it does all these things um, but yeah I mean this is the part I believe right where we get into where they uh, first they get to meet with the baby raptor right but yeah, I mean, I really liked that. Um, and just reading the book again, I'm not as familiar with it. And it's just like, it's, it is familiar enough that it's Jurassic and it's, uh, so it's like new yet warm and, and familiar is just the kind of the vibes that I take from it.
10: Yeah. Okay. Steve, what were your thoughts? You know, it's
5: just, uh, Crichton is just so good. It just like, just, making it feel so real. And it's it it's weird because it's almost like, I wonder for people who read the book, I wonder if we r- watch the movie with these sort of details in mind, you know, thinking about the control room and, you know, like, or like do we, like, when we're watching the movie, are we thinking about the the room of like the baby raptors, you know, off to the side like with those kind of things. So that that's the kind of stuff that that was really grabbing me this time around. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I just think, I mean, I understand. I think I understand why Crichton, you know, it's almost like Colin Trevorrow took the kids from the book and kind of rejiggered it for the the Jurassic world movie by having like, instead though, instead of a whiny little kid, uh, you know, a whiny little girl, it's like an emo teen. It's like that same idea of like, Uh, Because, you know, Crichton talks so much about how kids love dinosaurs. So to have a little girl in this book to be like, you know, just not interested in wanting to play baseball and stuff. It's I I think I think he was trying to just set up that idea that like uh, there's more to this place than just like the it's not just about the wonder of dinosaurs.
10: Yeah, it goes into quite a lot of depth and a lot of the information foreshadows what comes later on in the book, doesn't it? yeah brad what's your thoughts on the first bit when we're going through all of the facilities of the main buildings
0: oh i you know i like all that stuff um i i dig all the the lab stuff that's really cool to me even just that baby raptor i know i think dave you mentioned it like that is such an awesome moment i really wish we could have like seen something like that um you know, obviously we did get a baby raptor, but not the same way. I kinda want that like bouncy springy guy like jumping all over the place. Like that would have been so cool. And what I'm Well the horror this, later
5: is so horrifying with it with it <laughs> when the when the adult raptors turn on it, you know.
0: Yeah. I I I don't know, I just like this this moment and they go back and forth so many times and they a lot of this feels the same to me. Like it feels like this yeah. portion of the book, as I was going through, I'm like, oh, it really feels like the movie just like done slightly differently here and there with like different characters or whoever, but like I was, yeah, I was, I was digging it. I love the visitor center and even though the aesthetic and everything is a bit different and, and all that, uh, I'm totally into it.
10: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There's lots of, there's lots of really cool stuff in there. Um, some that's not in the movie and some that is in the movie, but it does feel the same. One thing I noted sure. um, with the baby raptor, we kind of get that with Blue in Fallen Kingdom when Owen's oh, sure. watching back yeah. on the on the videos. Yeah. I noticed true. the reference of about the rag. The raptor runs away from Tim and grabs the rag in the novel. And from memory, I'm sure the the baby Blue does that in the novel. He, he runs across and he's playing with the toys. So I wonder yeah. if Trivaro was, you know, trying to reference that. Yeah, um, I didn't.
0: Honestly, I didn't even think of that. I just said like, "Yeah, I wish we kind of got that," but we did. We got it times, you know, three, four raptors there. So, yeah, it, <laughs> it's, it's just quite a little bit differently actually. with the whole like the cute. You know, it's just so cute in that moment. I don't know, it's different.
10: <laughs> yeah, definitely, Steve. Like you were saying, that it's kind of like that we're we're being asked to love this little raptor, but obviously at this point we don't know what's coming. Uh, yeah. it kind of makes that bit of the book even more impactful.
5: Yeah. Oh, Um, yeah. Totally thinking back to the sort of innocent before we knew what was going to happen.
10: Yeah. Also, we get quite a lot of information here from Wu. We meet Wu for the first time and we get to understand a bit more about the science. I think the movie does a really good job of chopping it right down with Mr. DNA and the quick tour of the facilities before we go on to the main tour on the park. But it's kind of like you were saying, Brad, it's kind of like all of that information, but just dragged out a little bit further. Um, and I think it's building up the layout of the different rooms. So when we get to the finale of the book and we're, we're going through that building, those rooms are relevant to what happens. We won't say, because obviously we haven't got to the third episode yet, but it's all very relevant. Um, I really like how we, we sort of break off, uh, because boats docking in the East dock. So, uh, Grant and Malcolm and Ellie and Tim go off to see the Raptors, um, at the back they go past the goat pen i thought that was really cool um and they i think malcolm says oh maybe they feed feed them to the dinosaurs uh, little do we know <laughs> i wondered um what you guys thought of that um the scene that the Crichton writes there with the raptors and how they attack from the sides and so on what, what are your thoughts dave
8: um yeah it's really similar to the the movie you know the speech in the the beginning it's interesting to see Uh, The parts that they took from the book and the way they laid it out in the uh, screenplay in the film. Um, But yeah, it's just like you were saying about uh, earlier about just just going through it. I think this is the first time I yeah, this is definitely the first time I've read it since Jurassic World and Fallen Kingdom have come out. And I really had my eye out um, for a lot of things that were. Uh, mind for these newer films and stuff maybe that's why it adds a lot like it feels more familiar this this time through um seeing things in here um with like the speeches that malcolm gives his chaos speech like when they're at the uh, stegosaur part is definitely a lot of it's word for word from the beginning of fallen kingdom uh like you were saying about like the raptors and stuff and we see the the baby raptor video in fallen kingdom but um yeah yeah. Sorry, I don't know if I answered the question there, but that's kind of what I had on <laughs> <in> my mind.
10: <laughs> yeah, no, de- definitely. What What do you think, Stephen, about that bit of the book? I mean, I
5: love it's. It, I mean, it's. It you know, I, with the movie, everything sort of has to have. Um, you know, because it's a shorter form, it has to have everything has to sort of have suspense and everything, and I kind of like the book how we can just sort of see things and you know um i don't know i just like the the. i like i've always wanted to see like a top-down view of the park um the book layout and the movie oh, yeah. layout you know and so seeing those connections was really cool but um yeah i mean it's it i think the book does a great job of getting across the raptor terror like yeah it's like i think it's it's if i remember it's grant that's like you know it moves like Fast, impossibly fast when it like <laughs> attacks the fence.
10: Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. They they come in from the side and and then one attacks from the front. Um, and it was like you couldn't they... even
5: tell, you know. It was just like it was it's over before you know it, kind of thing.
10: Absolutely. What what are your thoughts on that bit, Brad?
0: I uh, I think I kind of referred to it with the the rest of the facility and stuff. It's it's the aesthetic is completely different. So like in in your mind as you're like going through some of these things you're kind of envisioning, like, what you know from the film. But, like, this in this case, I feel like it's, like, it felt very different to me because I think it was just described as, like, some fencing. And that was about it, I think. So it seems so crude, you know? And, and I've always, like, talked about how, like, it really feels like Hammond had no clue what he was doing with the park in yeah. the movies. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in this case, it feels even worse. Like, he's just, like, throwing up a few fences and, like, Like I'm just thinking like chain link fences and he just has no care in the world, you know. (laughs) So it it was it was pretty awesome, though. And it kind of gave me vibes of like uh, because it it feels different than the raptor sequence in the film where like you can't really see anything that's going on. You just got the branches and stuff. But this felt more of like you're viewing the Indominus Rex through the trees and you can kind of see him a little bit. Like
10: so it felt kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It's, it, is, it is quite a lot like that, actually. I like the fact that, that Grant just noticed one of them looking towards him and mm-hmm. then he just pulls down the, the frond and just sort of eyeballs him and then all, yeah. all hell breaks out. <laughs> um, a few things I noticed from that bit, I, I, I liked seeing the, uh, the fact that they had barbed wire at the top of the fence because it made me think of Jurassic Park 3 where we get the, the Kirbys meeting at the, at the electric, mm. well, it's not electric, at the, the fence there with the Spinosaurus with thing, the phone yeah. in his tummy and uh, i saw i remember the barbed wire and there was a lot of people saying why is that barbed wire on that fence and i thought well actually it is actually in the novel so we do get that to some degree uh, and we learn about the fences being ten thousand volts as well so that's quite interesting uh, the other thing yeah. i thought is it's a bit like uh, grant grant in the movie at the beginning there when he gets the kid with the six foot uh, turkey line mm-hmm. and then he's basically scaring the life out of him but he references and he, he moves his fingers in you know yeah. Um, to signal that that's how they attack, you know, they come in from the side. And you literally get that in that chapter with the raptors. So yeah. it felt very much like the script writers had just taken that bit and stuck it right at the beginning of the movie. He goes easy oh, on right. this kid in the beginning of the book. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, there is a kid that's like, that's that doesn't seem scary
0: or something, but he's just like, yeah, actually, you know. And he's just the normal about it. But in the book or in the movie, he just tries to destroy the kid, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <By laughs> I, I,
5: I like the barbed wire fence detail just because it, and as we'll see, you know, throughout the course of reading this, that like, you know, like you're saying, Brad, like Hammond has no idea what he's doing. And I, I think it like speaks volumes to the way that they've designed the park. I think that to me, in again, just yeah. as we move forward, like as far as Crichton's showing that these, that this park like doesn't respect nature, you know, these big themes that we talk about, with those simple things, like having barbed wire, you know, ha- having them to like, you know, reinforce the hotel later, you know, stuff like that where it's like, oh, they clearly are have it and and then again, Hammond's attitude, which again, every time I reread the book and I think about Michael Crichton saying, like I wanted to do the dark side of Disney, but Spielberg, you know that interview, <laughs> uh famous interview with Crichton, like anytime I reread the book, I think about those lines that Crichton said about Hammond, but I'm still shocked at how, like um not evil him it is, but just how much of a of like a careless he is you know thoughtless and he's just sort of like well i'm i'm here to get my way and i'm not going to listen to what anyone else has to mm-hmm. say it's surprising that always
8: time. that ties back to me i think he says something in the beginning of the book about the difference between the different scientists like ones that work for science and the ones that work for like corporations and how like yeah. careless they can be and I, I think of the part where I don't know how Grant le- managed to memorize the blueprints for the whole place, but <laughs> yeah. where they point out how many changes they've made. And it really ties back to, you know, Malcolm's speech in the movie. Just, you know, they want these dinosaurs. They know it's going to lead to profits and they'll figure the rest out as they go. And they've been adding, you know, security measures to things that Grant notices. Uh, you know, they they build the fence up or, what, or whatever it is. They just know they got to get the dinosaurs it's going to lead to you know success and making money, and they'll figure the rest out as they go along.
10: Yeah, he's definitely this greedy businessman kind of guy. Not the best boss. He's like chirpy and friendly with you one one minute, but when he realizes you're getting it wrong, like uh, later he totally pins the failure of the park on Wu, doesn't he? You know the fact that the, not <laughs> yeah. all the dinosaurs are, are female or or that all in the way that they're they're breeding. We get a there... few. Um, sorry, who? Oh, God. I was good. I was going to say there's that
0: moment, and I forget at what point it's in, it's during i think it's during this portion where like hammond is telling a story i forget what it was about but at the end of it he's just like oh i wouldn't help people that's you know that's not something i would do and it I was like yeah. oh okay that's dark yeah all right
10: <laughs> yeah that's when he's talking about like the breakthroughs in genetics and how it could help like human health mm-hmm. no I something yeah okay. on yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. 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 Pharmaceutical yeah. stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. You're right, Brad. And then he's like, well, I don't really care about that. I just want to, <laughs> yeah. just want to <laughs> oh, sell stuff. stuff. He just wants guy, to dude. patent it and make money, doesn't he? Yeah. He needs a hug, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, he, he's, he's getting quite bitter as he's, as he's getting on there, isn't he? Yeah. Um, we get quite a lot of references from the movie in this bit. We get the bit about there being 3 million lines, lines of code, uh, in the DNA, and we get the line about uh, that Malcolm says about lifting up the skirts on the dinosaurs to check if they're female. So that's quite cool. There's there's quite a few bits and pieces that they they've taken uh, taken from there. The other thing I, I noticed in the book, and it's kind of that Crichton doesn't make a big deal of it, but in the movie we've only got five or six characters on the island, and everybody else is left on the boat. Whereas here we've got staff in various places. We've got a guard on the on the door in the main building, which is relevant to later on in the book when things go wrong. And um, when the fence goes down and they have to pull a tree off one of the fences to get it reinstated, there's there's workers there. There's a worker that comes out to them at the raptor paddock. So that's something that that's different from the novel. Um, I quite like it because it, it, it sort of feels, I don't know, it feels a little bit more real when I'm reading it because those small details make you feel like it's a real place that exists as opposed to in the movie when they're all on their own. I, I understand why they did that because of the, the the simplifying of the story, but I did like that detail. I don't know if you picked up on anything like that, Dave.
8: Yeah. Um, I didn't I'd think of it quite in that way. Um, but you know, again, going through this book again, um, it's, it's a book. Obviously, the, the medium lends itself to getting much more detail um, that's why people always say the book is better than the movie, but what kept all the similarities to the film really struck me this time. And I know, I guess I sound like I keep talking about the film, but with this, the film is in no way inferior to the book or vice versa. And I just keep thinking of the brilliance of the screenplay about how uh, fast it is. It's, it's well edited. Um, it just, it gets all the points across. We don't need all this extra stuff. And yet when we sit down with the book, it's nice. It really fills in a lot. Um, and you know, just adds to my love and, and wonder of this franchise and everything.
5: What about yeah, you, Steven? No, I agree with Dave. I agree with you hundred percent, man. It's sort of that, that, that was, that's always my feeling. It's almost like if it, reading the book is almost like if they like played the movie in slow motion enough so that it, we could see details <laughs> that we previously didn't before. And uh, Ben, I am a hundred percent with you with like, seeing the park with people versus without and it to me the structure of the jurassic park book sometimes reminds me of jurassic world where you know in the in the original movie power goes out that's it and they you know try to get the power back on at the last minute you know this kind of final swing but jurassic park continues to sort of be a working thing you know the uh, well i won't spoil it i guess but you know the 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 nature of having to Try and still keep the park working even when the power goes down was such an interesting element from the book. And I'm kind of glad that they, that uh, Colin kind of caught that a little bit for Jurassic World that notion that, yeah, there are other, because it's just, just think of the chaos of like, you know, what are all these regular people do? Like, like not regular people, they work at the park, but like, what are they doing when the power goes out? Like, are they, I always imagine that there's like a workers only bar somewhere, you know, by the, by the workers living quarters. And they're all like, Hey, power's out. Like we can't get a hold of the upper brass, you know? So let's just go have a couple of drinks. And then all of a sudden it's like a Raptor like walks by. They're like, Oh, you know, like what's happening? Like, I just imagine that like, that there's a lot more, I mean, there's just a lot more potential for, like, your imagination to run wild because there is more people. I mean, how many people do we imagine are on the island? What, like, 50 maybe or something like that or 25? Yeah. or I forget if they actually say they, eventually how they many people.
0: It, they said that, uh I think at the moment there was, like, 20, and, and they could run the park on the 20
5: that are there. I mean, that's still so many people, like, compared to the book, what the book is <laughs> – Six or some, six or seven or something. Oh, no, like wait. That. I
0: think. No, I'm sorry. The the book was it said 20 and the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how many is in the movie, but
5: I think the movie is like six or seven. But because <laughs> everyone went to the dock, you know, or, you know, yeah. uh, last call for the uh, pick yeah. up what you're doing and leave now. But um, yeah, the, no, my imagination always thinks about yeah. um, what all those other people are doing when the power goes out.
8: Yeah, it's so much more isolated in the book. And they say is it's 18 hours or something is the boat ride. To the is that what they say? So, yeah, I think. Yeah, I and think like the impression you get from the movie is just it's like, oh, you know, just go home for the night on the boat and come back in the morning.
10: Yeah, yeah, because we get obviously we get the boat. Um, we actually get the boat in the book as a main thread of the story. Uh, we've got it's kind of sitting there in the background the whole time because Lex notices the raptor on the boat. Um, the boat has to leave because the weather's so bad. Or he's saying that the weather's coming in, and it's you know it's, the storm's going to cause them problems, which is quite like the movie. But then, of course, when Lex sees the Raptor, it's a race against time. Grant's got his watch there, and he's constantly referencing that throughout the the, the kids and Grant's journey through the park. So that's quite a big part of the movie that we don't get. It, I don't think the movie suffers for that at all but i think like you were i think it was brad were you saying or, or Stephen about slowing down the movie yeah, and yeah. just filling in the gaps with the book uh, there's quite a lot of that you know a lot of that happens uh, throughout yeah. also another bit before we leave the main buildings and start the tour uh we get malcolm questioning arnold on the systems on how they count the animals and the um the uh patterns on what they eat, when they eat, how big they are, how large their groups are, where they move. And that felt a bit like Jurassic World, where we go into the control room and we've got the big map up on the screen, we've got all the dots with the different species of dinosaurs and they all have a unique reference. So I felt like uh, in the world films, they, they took quite a lot of this part of the book and put it into the, the control room that we get in Jurassic World. Uh, also, we get a reference later on, I think it's Muldoon goes down the elevator to the garage. And of course we get an elevator in the control room in Jurassic World. So that's another mm-hmm. sort of thing that I feel like they've pulled in from the novel. So we, we jump in the cars, um, to set off on the tour just before we do that. Is it, does anybody else have any observa- more observations about the, the facilities and the, the bit before we start the tour itself?
5: God help us, we're the hinge of engineers.
10: <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're going to find that out in just a minute. I like the fact that we get the, uh, is it a trumpet fanfare at the start of the tour? I thought that was uh, that was quite a lot, quite different to the uh, the excellent um, John Williams score with the the jungle drums as we go through the Jurassic Park gates. Um, but we've got a lady handing out helmets with uh, blue dinosaur uh Pith helmets, I think they're called. Cool. We do blue dinosaur logos on them. I thought that was quite cool, and a bit of a Jurassic World reference there as well, using the colour yeah. blue. Um, and then, uh, then we set off, uh, and we but we do get Richard Kiley. so he's in the book <laughs> and he's in the novel. Um, so he's talking us talking us through the tour. Um, and then we get the first dinosaurs. They're the Othnelia. I hope I said that right. And um, just one for Garrett Sabrina from I know Dino here. Oth- <laughs> Othniel Marsh is the dinosaurs called the <laughs> Hold on a minute. Yeah, they kept calling it
0: Othi, right? And I was like, I don't even yeah. re- remember seeing the original dinosaur name, but I was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> yeah,
5: the the hipsies and the Othies, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Pispilophidon and the Othnelia, I think. I, I'm, I don't
10: even know if I'm I, pronouncing it uh, correctly.
0: That's over my head. I don't. <laughs>
10: Arnold, we get Arnold being quite nervous in the control room, and he's uh, he's saying to to Hammond that there's a, a hundred issues, a hundred details, a hundred problems with the park. And I thought that was quite well written by Crichton because when we meet Arnold initially, he's quite cocksure and he's quite happy with the system and he's confident in all of the setups and the procedures. But when we go back to Arnold, when everyone else is on the tour, the fact that he's quite nervous and edgy, um, I think is Crichton trying to write in that things aren't quite as comfortable as as they might seem initially um, we get to meet the Dilophosaurus as well which is interesting before the Nedri scene later on we get one of them by the river and yeah. I like the fact that Crichton references the hooting sound that the Dilophosaurus is making because that shapes the scene where Nedri's later on in the forest or in the jungle and uh, and he hears the sound <laughs> and again the river the river keeps getting referenced as we travel through the tour um, because obviously that's important later on as well. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what your thoughts were about this part of the book, the tour, as we start to get through and start to see the see the dinosaurs, Dave.
8: Um, I really like the, the all the problems that they point out. Um, you know, <laughs> we're just getting started, and it's quite obvious it's going to go south um and everyone's just so excited they're all blinded to all the problems the skin problems with the dinosaurs the the smells you know the bugs in the code how nedry's going to fix everything i I just think that's that's interesting to you know they're so preoccupied with with whether or not they should you know (laughs) yeah Um, yeah. but yeah that's that's really all i think about from this part is just you know i'm just like god there's so much wrong with this park and they're just sending them out there um And they just, how they rely so much on on the automation and they really do treat the computer like it's a magic trick or something. Uh, I love when he goes, when Muldoon goes down and they only have two gas powered Jeeps and there's like 20 land cruisers. And it's like, how could you possibly need uh, more vehicles to get around this island? What could go wrong? You know, Uh. I like that part. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's
5: it's that moment where Nedry is like, I thought I was going to be able to clean this up over the weekend. And then he's like, Oh no. (laughs) And I, to me, Crichton is such a great, he's so great at introducing characters. I love in this part, his not introducing, but like sort of doing this sort of background info. It almost reads like a documentary where it's like, yeah, I'm calling him Ray Arnold, but John Arnold in the book. You know, worked at, uh, you know, um, worked for the military, decided to quit because he didn't he didn't like that uh, because he was having a kid and then decided to work for Disney World and like the like the little rap sheet almost. And yeah. then same thing with Muldoon, you get, you know, uh, big game hunter, like raised in Kenya. His father was a big game hunter, then decided to help with, you know, uh, animals. And it's just like it's I can see this like visualized like like learning about these characters and so you really get like a sense of their where they came from their current anxieties and also in a way of how Hammond kind of treats them you know I I really thought like this part of the book I think a lot about the relationship between um, um Arnold Muldoon and um uh Wu in that sense of like these are like the three big players that helped bring Jurassic Park, you know, to where it is or sort of help helps maintain it. And I like that Arnold is sort of he I feel like Wu still fights with Hammond and like wants to do things and is like still trying to innovate. I feel like Arnold has sort of been like like Ray is sort of like resigned to be like. I'm going to tell you this, but you're not going to listen to me. Like, I know you're not going to like, he's like, he's sort of, he still cares, but he's sort of resigned. And this part of the book where he's just explaining all these things and him is just like pish posh, you know, like, I don't know. I, I love this character so much. And I understand, like, obviously I wonder now if they made this movie, like knowing that Sam Jackson would be playing, if this character would have gotten a bigger role in the movie overall, but Obviously at the time, the I mean, the character is great in the movie too, but it's just like, uh, the, the this sort of like haggard engineer character is just so cool. And it's one of my favorite elements of the book.
10: Yeah, me too. I, I would agree completely with that. What, what do you think, bro?
0: Yeah, uh, what Steven touched on there was something that stood out to me for, for Arnold was like the whole theme park conversation. Um, and I was just like, it almost like makes me like look at Disney World a different way. I'm like, "Oh, wow. <laughs> he helped build this place." You know, like it's like they put him as like, you know, it almost sounded like a founder of Disney World. It's like he helped build this place. I'm like, "That's amazing." Uh, and I did write down some of the other ones. It was like he implemented Magic Mountain in in California Old Country in Virginia and Astro World in Houston. I'm like, "All right, that's awesome." Like yeah. you don't really get that vibe from him in the movie. Uh, that he's like a theme park guy and then he's like talking about how uh you know people view the world in like a theme park way and stuff like that and we get we get a, l- a few little things about some of the attractions and the rides like they talked about how it was like a tracked river jungle river ride and I'm like that sounds awesome um there was an aviary lodge ride which is like something we're gonna be getting in in universal Beijing there's like an aviary ride now and it's awesome. Like, I can't wait to see that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just the, uh, the, the conversation about like the, the delays and stuff like that with the, and it's so silly. Like the Dilophosaurus on the the river ride. Why would you, why would you do that? (laughs) That's like a conversation that has never ended either because when, when Jurassic world comes out, I'm like, why, why are these dinosaurs on this river you know, uh, Cretaceous cruise or whatever they had in in the uh, in the, the the island
10: there. So yeah, it never ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we we learn that the Lophosaurus spit fifty foot, don't we? So yeah, just, that, that's actually quite a long way. You know, you, yeah. you need to you need to put some serious things in place there. You, you I, realize I agree that, with what was, that sorry, you
0: realize please. yeah, you realize they don't know what they're doing at all. Like multiple times yeah. throughout this book, like like they didn't realize that it was going to be capable of any of that stuff. And like yeah. even even earlier on I think like they're talking about the dinosaurs and like I think Woo's like somebody asks him like how many do you have here? He's like, Um, I don't uh fifteen maybe? I don't I don't know, I think. Yeah. And then like there's just like multiple instances of like somebody saying, I think and then like Malcolm or whoever being like, oh, What do you mean you think? You don't know?
5: Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Well well also too to that point, Brad, like in in this um in the you know, the source part of the book, um And when they get to Muldoon's introduction, like obviously, you know, as an animal lover, I don't want any animal to be dissected, but as far as like, as far as like for this park to figure out how, how to properly care and maintain for these animals, like they just like the, the notion that, I mean, it's the, it's the Miss Ronnie thing where it's like, we just spent, you know, $6 million on this creature. We can't just kill it. And so it's like that idea of like everyone's, in the wrong headspace of how to approach these creatures so it's like because if they had you know if they had maybe take i i don't know why i'm on this uh, like they should dissect (laughs) the animals but i just it just really stuck out to me Muldoon, who they frame his character i love the way that they frame his character and i think his character could be as consistent in the movie of this person who's realistic about animals i think they use that phrase and so it's just like they won't allow them to study the animals essentially in in any way sort of it's almost like their hands are like they always have one hand behind that's the thing that i love about all the all the the major players in the park who work for the park they all kind of feel like they have one hand behind tied behind their back at all times by hammond yeah i think
8: everything you guys are saying uh just kind of points to the the character of hammond and the work environment that he's really a bad boss um, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to get bogged down by the details. They say that a lot. And it just kind of reminds me if you guys have ever had a bad boss where they never, they got an idea in their head, like, you know, why not put the Dilophosaurus next to the river? We're like, well, it spits, but, oh, but you know, you got to have the Dilophosaurus next to the river and, you know, and everyone is just kind of like grizzled and they the, like the part of Wu saying he's just tired of bringing things up and he knows it's not going to stick. And it seems like everyone's just kind of lax at, at their job now. And they're yeah. not bogged down by the details. And they, you know, Malcolm, when he shows up and really punches them for the details and they realize all the mistakes that they're making, it just kind of shows Hammond has the vision, but not the, you know, I don't want to say the, the, the doesn't have the guts to, you know, to, to get everything managed properly and have all the details tied up.
10: Yeah, that's right. I mean, going to what you just said there, Dave, it's like even the, uh, the boat has to leave because the east dock doesn't have the proper infrastructure because yeah. Hammond wouldn't invest the money in the east dock. Uh, like the, they try to remove the Dilophosaurus pouches from, from where the spit venom comes from, um, but they won't kill a Dilophosaurus because of the value that's, you know, that it, the cost that it took to produce it. So there's a lot of those sort of um, details. In there, that all goes back to Hammond about cutting corners. All he, he wants to make the money, but he's not prepared to invest the money in the right places. Same with the weapons I and, mean, you know. go oh, yeah, all yeah, his yeah. Weapons mm-hmm. and Henry's has a conversation in the bungalow with Hammond about the fact that, you know, he wants to change the dinosaurs because they are actually too fast. They're too real. They're too strong. You know, and he references Muldoon ordered uh, rocket launchers and nets, you know, electric nets. Which reminds me of the attack on the Indominus, where the ACU team are trying to take yeah. down the Indominus. And they fire that net at, yeah. at him, and it uh, just uh, he uh, just brushes it off. I was that thinking that Kenner toys think the whole moment. time. <laughs> I was thinking Say Kenner again, toys. Bro.
0: Like the Kenner toys were like exactly as described. It felt like you know in that yeah moment. rocket,
5: yeah rocket launcher Muldoon.
10: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Actually I, that was one thing I was going to say um I was going to say to you in particular Dave because I know you shoot a lot of the do a lot of your photography of the toys. I'm right in saying we never got a Lex toy. Is is that right?
8: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah.
10: All it didn't our hopes really are on to me until the other day. And then I thought about it, I thought <laughs> we never got the Lex toy. I I wonder why that is.
8: There's a story that the actress uh, Ariana Richards she actually cried when she found out she didn't get a toy. Uh,
10: yeah. Yeah. It just seems it, it just seems strange to me because she's just as much of a main character as anybody else is in that in that film. Well, so. they made
5: Tim. So you think yeah. you'd want the kid. I mean, how great would it be to have adventures? Because I remember as a as I mean, as all of us, I presume as kids were playing with our toys like you, we couldn't even recreate the, you know, Lex and Tim and Grant going through the park together, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we got. Well, and you and use my sister's ledger. Barbie, you know, and <laughs> yeah. like she's way taller than the other two characters.
10: I was yeah. gonna say that would have been really weird. She'd have been like <laughs> the T Rex size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. T Rex Barbie. I think I that think that's... that was a
8: problem back in the '90s with yeah. um with toys. They just didn't want. They thought no one wants to play with an old man action figure. No Hammond. No one wants to play with girls. You know, it's it was rare that you saw women in the toy lines. You know, you really only had Ellie and Sarah and and Kelly in the second one. But yeah. yeah.
10: Yeah, no, that yeah. is true. It's something that's got definitely getting got better over the years. Uh, but but like you say, if Mattel could uh, do something there, that would be that would be really cool. <laughs> so uh, moving on um, with the book itself, we get the uh, the Stegosaur scene, which is effect. it's the Triceratops scene in the movie. I know they swapped that out because I believe I'm right in saying that Spielberg's favorite dinosaur when he was a kid was a Triceratops, and I didn't think I don't think he felt it mattered which species. Which of the two herbivores were included, um, but we get a lot of the similarities here. We get a bit of a- uh, Ellie being tenacious and trying to find out what the <laughs> what the problem is, and I quite like the way that this bit's written. I don't know what, what your thoughts are, Dave. What do you think about this scene?
8: Um, I really like it, and it kind of really shows like uh, the character of Alias is kind of like the first time that they bring out you know talk about her specialties and what she offers to the to the group and stuff. Um, and I like just in general, the character of Harding, how he's more present in the whole book because uh, he really wasn't in the movie hardly at all. But um, yeah, I think I read the junior novelization when I was a kid and this gizzard stone part, I always think about <laughs> like in depth because it went more into it in that. But yeah, it just the scene, you know, one of my favorite in the movie with the triceratops. And I guess going back to that junior novelization, it just, you know, makes me feel like a kid again reading this part about the stegosaur.
10: Yeah. Yeah, what's interesting about the movie part of that? Sorry, just before we, we go to you guys, the other two guys here, is um, we that's dropped on the movie completely. Yeah. So we get we get the the triceratops, then she's digging through the poop, and she's working out about the West Indian Indian lilac, and then that's it completely. <laughs> so that's that's all that, unless I, unless I just can't remember. A reference to it after that point but it just no. seems to just it's kind of like we meet the triceratops and it's an amazing scene i mean i absolutely love it it's so iconic and then it's just gone we get the the big pile of something from Malcolm <laughs> and, and then no more that's it they're back to the car i mean the only sort of thing that we get i suppose is it's an opportunity to, for ellie to stay with harding and split the split the tour but um steven sorry i jumped in there what no. no what are your it, thoughts on that scene no,,
5: but, but I mean, you bring up a good point. I think in the movie, Spielberg, I mean, that's probably the biggest cut moment because Spielberg doesn't traditionally doesn't have like deleted scenes in a way, and that seeing that, uh, I'm a big trading cards person, and so, like the tops trading cards. and then later in life getting into the dynamic australian only Australian and New Zealand only trading cards, you have more shots of that moment of them figuring out or, or at least more of that mystery. And I think maybe Spielberg, well, you know, there's bigger fish to fry as the movie goes on. So it almost becomes like a symptom. It's just more of like thematically, like whatever's going wrong with the Triceratops is just a symptom of the larger, you know, what's that the park doesn't know what, you know, it lack of control and, you know, uh, you know, just those kind of larger issues of not respecting nature. But, um, I wonder if they decided to go with a Triceratops because you could just get a much better like view of like I'm doing this. We're doing it on a podcast right now. But like, you know, the Stegosaurus tiny head. I don't feel like it lends itself to like filmically. You know what I mean? Like if you think about those same angles and things, I'm just thinking about this now when we're talking about this. But like, I wonder if Spielberg was like trying the blocking out. Cause I think about this because as we're recording this, the suicide squad, the James Gunn, one trailer came out and he talked about the difference between, they wanted to originally do a hammerhead shark head versus a great white shark head. And they talked about them doing blocking out for the hammerhead one. And it just wasn't working cinematically. <laughs> and I just wonder if there's an element of this, of like thinking about the different head. Cause I mean, the triceratops, you know, has the beautiful fa- you know, the, the frill and you can kind of get yeah. these good angles and even like holding on to the horn you know, I, I just wonder like, and even like with it laying on its side, like with the play, like I almost feel like a Stegosaurus wouldn't you, everyone wouldn't be able to get in as close, I think in a way with a Stegosaurus. So that this is just these thoughts coming right now, but um yeah, I just wonder if that's, if there's more to this story of like, because Spielberg talked about getting letters from kids all angry. Yeah. That there was no Stegosaurus in Jurassic park, you know, yeah. uh, So I just find it. Yeah. I just wonder if there was more to the process. I wonder if somebody at Stan Winston has stories, John Rosengrant or something like that, like could talk about those dinosaur choices, you know, because I mean, I I'm, I'm glad they went with the triceratops, but, um, but yeah, I wonder if there was more thought out. There was more thought out behind that.
10: Yeah. Practically it makes sense because like you say, the shape of it's much easier to sort of sit down on the ground there. I suppose you haven't got the big, uh, Scales on the back there, the platelets on the back there, and the small head would probably be an issue. Plus, we get it in the Lost World movie, don't we? We get the Stegosaurus wading through the through the trees there. So I feel like he redeemed himself there. We, yeah. we effectively got the <laughs> Triceratops and the Stegosaurus. But yeah, no, you make some good points about that, Brad. What, what do you think about that scene?
0: Yeah, I uh I definitely feel like something's missing, you know. And and it's been a while since I read the book, you know. I feel like something's missing from the film now. It's just like. There's nothing to explain anything. It's just like a big mystery as to why these dinosaurs are are sick. And it's just like, well, okay, there's a flash of lightning. We got to go. We got to get out of here now. Um, So it's funny. But um, uh, another interesting thing that happens like right around this moment is like huge and, and doesn't happen here. It happens, you know, later on, but it's not anything that like, progresses the story at that moment but grant finds that eggshell like around this area and like brings it to everybody's yeah. attention and i feel like that's a that's a much more major moment here than it is in the film because in the film he finds it you know that they, they go around or continue like wandering through the jungle and then later on there i think he says something
10: but like but yeah it's it's a much bigger moment this time around yeah definitely it really is because it's the bit where um between the guys out on the park and the control room they have the dialogue and malcolm Mm -hmm. gets them to test the system and then asks (laughs) them to search for more and more species and then eventually they reach their upper limit i think it's 290 something initially they're searching for 300 and hammond's panicking and then it comes in that there isn't 300 and he's all smug about it but then we get 290 (laughs) instead of something like 230 yeah Um, so it's kind of like that's the the door for that whole conversation the fact that that, that he finds the the eggshell, and like you say in the movie, again, I suppose it, it's lovely how it's put in the movie because it, it adds, adds that majesty, and you get the the beautiful score at that point where we see the footprints running off through the sand. But it's sort of we get to hear it, and also actually in the movie we get to hear about the amphibian um, aspect, um, how they can breed, being a, is it asexual or where they're, they're, they can change their sex in order to. Um, reproduce, but they mm. they can all start off as female. I think there's there's some frogs that can do that. So we get a little bit of that in the film, and it's kind of taken from the novel and given to us as a piece of information. But in the book itself, it makes a big difference to the to the flow and the and the story itself. Uh, also, we get Gennaro staying with Ellie, and we get uh, because of course one thing I don't think we've, we've talked about yet is we've got Regis in the novel here. Yeah, um, who just is. Just not in the in the the book. Sorry, the movie at all. So it's kind of like Gennaro is a bit of a the Gennaro in the movie is a bit of a mix of Regis and Gennaro in the Mm -hmm. book. So uh that's interesting. uh,
5: Who would you all get to if they were making maybe making Jurassic Park back in the nineties, who would you have cast to play Regis? I think about that all the time. I, I think if I think you could get a good Clint Howard cameo maybe a young Clint Howard or if they were making it now I think this was like cuz he's kind of slimy he's kind of like thinks he's too good for this you know he's I'm not a goddamn babysitter sorry yeah. um but uh like even I could even see somebody like Zac Efron like this is my chance to get like to be unlikable I feel like there's I feel like at least now we're in an age where a lot of really handsome people want to be seen it's like the Jared Leto syndrome of like how do I make myself as ugly as possible and I could see somebody I mean you could even do Jared Leto it's just like you know this guy who thinks he's like too too big for his britches but Hammond keeps knocking him down a peg you know yeah but who would you guys who would you guys want to play Ed Regis if they I think Zac Efron's
10: him? quite a good shout actually I could, I could definitely see him playing that part actually and uh, getting his demise later on um, yeah as, as Regis does well yeah. what about you guys
0: I feel like Colin Farrell does those kinds of roles that you were talking about, Stephen, where like he just is unrecognizable, you know, to a certain Ooh. extent. So that would that would be funny, but yeah, he I, he's not what I would ever have imagined. <laughs> Dave, have
10: you got any thoughts?
8: No, I, I'm not sure. I, I can't <laughs> think of anyone from the '90s and now. I don't know. Just I, I, I always <laughs>
10: imagine I always imagine the guy driving the jeep in the film. with the cap oh yeah yeah Uh, Yeah. in my head I always have him as Regis I just think you know it's kind of like Arnold with even less to do Uh, um (laughs) (laughs) they just put him in there
5: you know but that I mean that could work because it's like that guy is like handsome and it's one of those things where I feel like Ed Regis is somebody who kind of thinks he's too good for the actual position that he's in so I always found that dynamic kind of interesting
10: Yeah, no, it is interesting. Uh, one, one of the things, actually, well, I, I missed it earlier, but I like the fact that Reed just points out that they're going to have a restaurant, actually, yeah. on the tour. I, I thought that was quite weird. I mean, how does that work? Does, does the tour vehicle stop? You get out of, I don't know, tour vehicle four and then carries on and you have your lunch and get back in tour vehicle, I don't know, 12 or something like yeah, that?
5: I, I thought it was more like that's just a different part of the park that you could oh, go maybe. to. Yeah, that it's almost yeah. like... It's almost like you're on the, it's like the gift shop thing where it's like, it's like, here, look at this other thing. You can go spend your money on later kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Or um, at Disneyland, um, the Pirates ride where you see the restaurant, you know, like you don't necessarily go to the restaurant from the ride, but you can see it. And you're like, oh, I'm hungry. I should I, go yeah. <laughs> to this ride afterward uh, to the but Blue Bayou. Blue Bayou?
0: Bit... Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like a shop window for it, isn't it? It basically yeah. like the McDonald's sign on the highway when you're, like, driving by. Yeah. Like, I got to stop there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I'll say, like, um there's kind of a tangent. But, like, when I was uh, on a safari in Africa, like, we would just stop in the middle of nowhere and just get out. And they would, like, serve us tea and biscuits. And it's, like, wow. terrifying. I would wonder if, like, a park like this, because it seems very, like... Uh, you know, it doesn't, there's nothing to it. It's very minimal. I wonder if they would have done something like that at some point. So that sounds kind of scary, but I'm sure there are people that would probably pay for that kind of a, if, or maybe we'll, maybe we'll see that in like Dominion. That could be a cool tie-in. Mm. That's besides maybe that. They, maybe they could <laughs> yeah. have like a
10: coupon day or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that will be, that will be a way of doing it. One thing um, actually we we brushed over a little bit earlier, which um. It, I suppose it's not that relevant, really, but we get uh, the scene with the rex where they bring the goat out to entice the rex, and we learn that he's quite shy and he gets sunburnt and things like that. <laughs> and that kind of harps back a little bit to the um, uh, they don't really know what they're doing. You know, they're creating these animals and putting them in this environment. That they sunburned. don't really know what, exactly. Yeah, and, I was wondering—is that really serious? Weird. Is were they sorry, serious?
0: Do you think they're serious with that quote? Like, cause like I was reading that I'm like, I don't know if they're being serious or if he was just like kind of joking about like, ah, he's, he's going to get a sunburn. I'm like, I, I wasn't sure
10: how to I interpret am. that, you know? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I, I, The way I took it was like, it was just another thing where, you know, cause earlier on they talk about the fact that the air was a different humidity mm-hmm. and the, the solar rays from the sun was different in the Jurassic yeah. era and things I like that. I love that, that moment, I just wondered yeah. it. It was more like that. They just didn't know. What the, you know the, the whole thing about not really knowing what they're doing they're just creating this zoo or this park and thinking they could just put these animals in their pens and they're just gonna mm-hmm. behave uh you yeah, know, yeah. In a i took way. it as it's literal problem.
8: i think um and i wrote in my notes just the dinosaurs sound disgusting at this part the, the smell <laughs> yeah. and it's like it's like a gimmick that hammond is relying on is just the wonder and everyone in the book is just in awe of and we're seeing a dilophosaurus and oh there's the tyrannosaur and the apatosaur yeah and like, it, and it's, the woo is kind of talking to him on the side. Like, I can change these things. I can make them more of something else, you know. And it just—that's where I kind of went. Where my mind was like, "Yeah, like, what what happens when this gimmick wears out?" Yeah, did, one of David, the things that was
10: really the, odd uh, was uh, that I, I I found a bit weird as well was Richard Curly on the when he's talking to them and they're in the car and they're looking at the Othneys. Uh, he says about them having like a skin rash or an itch or something yeah. like this. And I'm thinking, why would they script him that? to to deliver in the tour. I mean, you're not going to tell, why would you tell your guests that one of the dinosaurs has got like a skin problem or something? It's it's like a really weird thing to say. That is, it is weird.
0: Um, I was going to mention, um, the evolution of Claire actually does like a big portion, I think on like skin disease or something like that. I think on the Brachiosaurus, they have some sort of like skin problem. I don't know if any of you guys read that
5: or, or remember. No, no, I'm trying to remember that, but I mean, um, I think definitely evolution took a lot from the ne- like the park maintenance aspects of mm-hmm. of this book or inspired by. Um, yeah. I was going to say it's very funny to me. Speaking of Jurassic World references or or elements taken, um, my friend Courtney, who played the Mosasaur announcer, uh, they do the line the in the book. It's he's a little shy, but I like when I when I when I was reading the line, I read it and heard her performance in <laughs> Jurassic World talking about the Moses. she's a little shy. Like I yeah. just, when I just read it in that voice, <laughs> I couldn't help it. Um, the, that reading it in her way or like her delivery. Um, so I wonder too, if that line was maybe, you know, subconsciously or, or purposely taken because there is something very funny about that. You know, like again, Brad, I totally, now that you say that, I'm like, yeah, there is kind of like, a in a way that could also be a sort of a sign of like the disrespect of the park workers in that sense of like, yeah, they get sunburn, you know, like what do you, why are you complaining? You know, like kind of yeah. thing, like <laughs> Trivializing. Who, who gives a cr- crap, you know, like I, I kind of like that now almost as like a sarcastic response. <laughs> it's like he, they get sunburn. What do you want?
10: Yeah. Okay. He's a
5: shy dinosaur. Like, yeah, i there's definitely some interesting things there at play of, of again, like this part of the book really talking about, um, again going back a little bit like with but with like Muldoon's uh breakdown and thoughts about the park and yeah the practical realities uh like we're all talking about these like practical realities of like and I like what you're saying Dave about the dinosaurs being kind of ugly it's like oh they're all rashy and sunburned <laughs> it's like oh my eyes it's too bright out here you know like yeah like dinosaur like well but I mean it's that's so true to life I mean animals up close are are big and impressed like uh, last year I was on a farm for a little bit and like getting up close with like these huge cows. It was just like, like there's something very impressive about being around big animals that, um, I, I think that this book does get well of like, it's, there's something kind of gross, but kind of awe-inspiring. I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that going on. I like.
10: Yeah. I think you're definitely right about the Mosasaur but you were just talking about as well. I think there's a, lo- I think I think. Trevorrow or the script writers for Jurassic World in particular definitely took I mean I think they really studied the book and they really tried to pull some bits out I know they changed them in places like the little triceratops at the the kids riding in the petting zoo you know we get the little triceratops later on in the in the novel so there's there's a lot there's a lot that seems to be taken and and in fact it's given me a new a newfound sort of appreciation of Jurassic World reading the novel again, because there's so many uh, takeaways in the novel that have, that have been translated into the movie. So after, after that bit, we, we get the rum, rumble of thunder, uh, the group splits, um, they both go back, uh, they go, one goes to the car with um, Harding, that's Ellie and Gennaro, and the rest of them go back to the tour vehicles and set off. Um, we get the, the bit with Lex, uh, Lex notices a Raptor on the boat so this is quite interesting. Actually, no, it's not. Cause I've already referenced it. I've just jumped my, I've just picked up the wrong piece of paper. I'm, I'm already on the wrong bit. We get the road attack with the Rex. That's what we get next. Um, so we get reference with the, the night vision goggles, um, Gennaro is swapped with Regis, but Regis pees his pants and runs from the car. Um, and Lex is shouting, you know, he left us, he left us. Um, uh, Dave, what are your thoughts about this scene with the the Rex, the Rex attack on the main road here?
8: Um, I wrote in my notes here that Michael Crichton writes very cinematic. Um, I, again, I keep going back to the the film. And it's like a lot of the work was done for the for the screenwriters for, you know, uh, by Crichton and stuff, it's very you can see this as a film playing out the, with the, the lightning, um, the night vision goggles, um, you know, looking to see the, the wrecks. There's the part of the small arms grabbing the fence, you know, which they put in the movie. Uh, the Lots of the blood coming down and stuff is again in the movie. Uh, the way Regis runs out, they describe the, the door being left open just like it's in the movie. So it's just very cinematic and it's fun to read and it, it really helps your imagination.
10: Yeah, absolutely. Um Steve what Stephen, what do you think about this?
5: For some reason and I might be wrong because it's been a while since I've read. Actually,
10: I I would say I I read
5: I I reread the entire Lost World probably more recently. Um but I just feel like Michael Crichton really likes to have his characters pee their pants when they're scared. <laughs> like and it's such a like cool kind of detail in a way because yeah, it's like you like Again, talking about being around big animals, I think that there is. I think that I like Crichton kind of takes into account that, like, we are, per, you know, we are the prey, you know, to this. I mean, even though it's a juvenile T Rex, like, um, or sorry, the juvenile T Rex eventually gets uh, Ed, but like the, ju- or just, so the adult T Rex, but like, it's just that idea of like your body would react almost like before your logic you know and so i like those i like those it feels quite human doesn't it yeah yeah i mean it's just not glamorous to show in a movie like imagine if like like they just cut to shot genera just like pissing himself he's like <laughs> oh jesus oh jesus and like the kids are like oh gross you know and it's like <laughs> it's just very undignified you know Yeah, which is funny because I think in the movie they really, you know, make Gennaro out to be a chump. He's wearing socks with with sandals like he's a total goob, Um, you know, and I I, I think and I think that they like, I mean, Ed Regis is kind of lame in a different way. But like, um, you know, but yeah, it's that scene in the in the in the book is is still as great as the movie, even though it plays out a little differently.
10: Yeah, definitely. Brad, what are your thoughts on that part?
0: Yeah, I really like noticed how how much of this sequence takes place from like Tim's point of view, and I know Steven Spielberg has always been really good about like showing it from the humans' perspective, but I think there was even something further about like just viewing it from this this basically his single perspective and like what he's seeing, how he's seeing everything play out. So I thought that was really cool, and I also got like um uh, more of like a, a vibe that this Rex is is even stronger and just scarier in a way. Like I feel like in the movie, it's almost almost kind of playing like in a way, like it's just kind of biting the tire and eating it and just kind of yeah. pushing yeah. things a little bit, it's a little bit more playful even though it's brutal at times, but like this one, the fact that it like I get picks up the car and just chucks it. Like it, <laughs> it gives me more of that perspective of like the beginning of Fallen kingdom where it's much more of a brute, you know, like she just kind of plows through main street, pushes a truck out of the way like and just plows through so I was kind of getting more of that kind of Rex vibe so I don't know it was was very powerful so either way in the movie or the book
10: (laughs) yeah no definitely um uh, well I agree with what everybody said there I think it's really it's a really the movie version is absolutely awesome but I think the the book reads really well Dave what you were saying about it being written in a cinematic way you can imagine I can imagine that being filmed as well even if you almost followed it exactly as the novel says it, you could you could see that being filmed. I think CGI the technology we have now, the CGI we have now, mixed in with some animatronics, could probably handle that sequence a little bit better. But uh, but definitely it could all it could all be done. I like the the fact that we still get Tim in the tree as well. He's in the car there. He takes off his watch, which is a nice little detail later on when when Muldoon's trying to work out whether or not they've survived and he's saying, you know, it's not been ripped off, it's been it's been taken off after it's smashed. But I like the fact that Tim has to get, get himself together, get the door open. He's trying the door handle, but he can't get it out. And he, he ends up lifting the latch and he manages to get out in time as the car comes down on him. I like the fact that he hits the floor and rolls in tight to the tree as it smashes down. It's all very similar to what we get in the movie, but done in a different kind of way. Uh, and then we get Regis, uh, Regis's demise. Um, and I think that's, that's, Quite good. I like the fact that it's initially written from the point of view of Grant. Um, You know, he hears, uh, I think he hears Regis coughing and he goes to see what's going on and then the kids come across. Mm, And uh, I I noted that Lex, uh, Grant has to put his hand over Lex's mouth to stop her screaming, which is the same as when Grant pulls Lex out from the car in the movie. So I feel like maybe that was kind of that was taken when the script writers were writing the movie they like they liked the idea of having to keep a quiet stopper from screaming so they placed it in there um i don't know what your guys thoughts are of uh, regis's demise dave
8: um i i liked it i liked the way that they described the young rex playing with him it reminds me of like a, a cat or something if you ever seen your cat get a mouse you know it's not serious until it it, till it gets to the end um but yeah and it's just Everything feels like uh, so close the the way it's it's uh, from Grant and the kids point of view. And there's supposedly this giant, you know, juvenile Rex uh, attacking the the lawyer just close enough and they can see every detail. And it really puts you in there and just lets you know the real danger that everybody's in at that moment that it's from someone else's point of view. It's not from um, Regis, right? Not Gennaro. Yeah. um yeah if we don't see it it's not told from his point of view it's from someone else's yet all the details are there and it makes it feel claustrophobic and close
10: yeah no i definitely I, i agree completely with that steve what are your thoughts
5: this is it just made me realize that this scene is almost the equivalent of when the kids are in the movie when they're behind the log and watching the T-Rex kill the Gallimimus, but it's more brutal. Cause it's a person. No. It's like, kids, you ready to grow up? It's just like <laughs> so much blood, you know, it's just, I mean, how traumatizing and how horrifying, I mean, truly to witness that. Um, I, I just was thinking too, Brad, you're, you're so right. I, one of the things I think about is how much more from Tim's perspective, the book is at times. And I wonder if, you know, Spielberg takes more of like a bird's eye view approach a little bit, but I wonder if too, maybe because of Joseph Mazzello was really young and, you know, maybe was, didn't want to shoulder him with his, him with as <laughs> much, you know, in yeah. that sense. But um, yeah, I just think too, it's like, yeah, this is, yeah. Cause it's, I mean, Jurassic park is all about that, you know, that, that, um, awe versus horror kind of thing. So it's, it almost every time you, every, anytime we go into these encounters with a dinosaur, it's like, I think Michael Crichton is having fun with, like, how brutal can I make this? You know, it, and to me, yeah. growing up, what always stuck out to me as a kid reading the Jurassic Park books, um, you know, eight, nine, 10, you know, preteen into high school is just how brutal all these kills are.
10: Yeah, yeah, he doesn't hold back really. He he likes to go into the detail, and he sort of keeps it soft, and then all of a sudden it gets serious. Crunch, you know, lots of crunching. <laughs> what and were you west, thinking? Bro? You
5: know, <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I was I was um, thinking about how like, y- and I think you guys mentioned you know how it's like not from it's not like a first person incident. It's happening from a little bit farther, but like it's still very scary because everybody's like clenched against a uh, a tree or something. But it feels like a horror movie, like they're kind of witnessing like the murderer in the background, like you know, yeah. like playing with its, you know, and then just just ripping the flesh off. It's brutal. Um, but it, it also makes me think of like the Lost World and how they utilized like their baby Rex and how how small that was. That was a much smaller one, I, I think. It was almost like half the size, I think. Um, yeah. But I, I really want to see like that eight foot tall T Rex. Like that yeah. would be really cool. That would be awesome. <laughs> Maybe one day.
8: Yeah, yeah. yeah I totally mean, imagine that being the eight foot tall Kenner toy doing that to him. That's
0: where yeah, my mind went. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean,
5: it's it's funny. Yeah, because we get we obviously get like Compies and the Dilophosaurus are kind of like tiny in the movie world, and then you have raptors that are human size, and then you just have the big boys. But like, yeah, what's like an in between? You know, what's what would that yeah. look like?
10: Yeah, because the Dilophosaurus are referenced as. I think, Think being twelve foot in the uh, in the book here, um, I and mean, obviously they're yeah, much smaller like in the movie. And I, I know I don't know if it's official or not, but I know there's a lot of people always say uh, is the Dilophosaurus in the movie a juvenile Dilophosaurus or is it a fully grown Dilophosaurus? When Nedry says, you know, you're, you're not as scary as your big brother, <laughs> is he saying? As in your actual big brother, the, the other Dilophosaurus, or big brother, as in your species, as in the T Rex. You know, I, I I wonder if if anybody knows any more about that, or whether we're just kind of left guessing.
5: I feel like they've retroactively done stuff, Brad. Right, with like the Jurassic World ride mentioning that the Jurassic Park they, Diloph- they Dilophosaurus that, was right? a juvenile, and yeah, excuse me, there yeah, there's been like that's one of those like they've retroactively tried to sort of explain it a little bit. But I mean it's we truly haven't gotten a physical on-screen Dilophosaurus appearance since the first movie. So it's sort of anyone's you know, you, like are are we gonna go to Dominion and then they're gonna show a 12 foot, 20 foot Dilophosaurus? I hope so, like man. <laughs> that would blow my mind. That would frickin' blow my mind. And they that would, they would
0: awesome. have to they'd have to explain it though, because most people would be like, that's yeah. not the same size as the what you know, like the, now they're just making everything bigger. So there needs to be like dialogue about like, oh, it was the juvenile in in the first movie and and they can in this book like they they mostly say that like dennis didn't really he didn't really know about the dinosaurs too much he just kind of like he didn't take the tour or anything so he doesn't really know so you could kind of see that in a movie where he's just like hey you know one of your bigger brothers i don't i don't know you know (laughs) whatever it is you know the t-rex so you can kind of throw it away like that but i would love it if it was if it was true you know it would, it it would be cool. They
5: could just do it visually with showing a little Dilophosaurus, and you're like, "Oh, you're so cute." And then, like, out from the branches, like or out from yes. the trees, walks the giant one. I mean, Fallen Kingdom, we basically only got a few hoots. We didn't hear like a hoot and then like a hoot. You know, like there wasn't, <laughs> you know, there was like a size difference. Uh, it in, in the up the bass next
10: time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was, was really... like, "Oh, that's
5: a big Dilophosaurus <laughs> hoot." I, you're like, I "Whoa!" I was really. I,
10: I was I, when I heard the hoot in Fallen Kingdom. I could tell you I was. I mean, I was already. Uh, uh, Wrapped up with that whole opening scene. I mean, that's fantastic. But when I heard the hoot, I was like, "Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> I need to see this Dilophosaurus." But do tease uh, yeah, us. I mean, going back to what you were saying there, Brad. I, you know, if they if they do put uh, Dilophosaurus, I know we're going a bit off here, but if they do put Dilophosaurus in Dominion, I, I really hope it's presented it in some context. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just turn up and it's huge and it's scary and does you know awful yeah. things. I'd like to, I'd like a bit of a reason why or an explanation as to you know why it's that big, or the juvenile in the first one, or something. And I know yeah. in, in a previous podcast that uh, you recorded, um, you were talking about um, po- the possibility of a flashback mm. um, to the to the yeah. the sequence with Nedry and the Dilophosaurus there, and what happens to the Barbasaur can. With, that's uh, with that's Dolphins where I want
0: and it. And yeah, so. I want it to show up right then and there, and and you kind of get that because you think the small guy is going to show up. And maybe he does I think Stephen you just mentioned like the, you know the big one comes hoot afterwards like that would be awesome if that just followed in its footsteps and uh, in a flashback or something. Yeah, it,
10: it, would, it would certainly give it some context. Yeah. Um, I'd really hope that was an anim- animatronic one as well, so it felt, you know, it's sort of with your eyes. Continuity, you know, yeah. yeah exactly. That would be amazing. That's that's the, that's the word I was looking for. Talking of Nedry, uh, we move on to Nedry as it happens. Just oh. one thing with Nedry earlier on in the novel, he's he's referenced as being like a college um kid yeah which really threw me off because I just cannot get Newman out of my <laughs> out of my mind there so uh, so that was a difficult one to get my head around but um we get we we, we get the sequence of Deadry. obviously he's um he's made things go wrong with the power there's a reference earlier on in the book that when the main power fails and the backup power kicks in it means the security locks don't work on the doors so of course he's able to effectively get access to all the different areas. In the film, he has to time it, and he waits for the system to shut down so he can get in. But in the, in the novel, um, even when the security goes off, uh, that's when the security uh, cards don't work um, in the main facilities. And that's important later on in the novel as well, uh, much later on in the novel, when we get the sequence with Grant and the kids, and you know they get back to the visitor center. But going back to Nedry uh, at this point in the novel, uh, we get the whole sequence with the uh, with him trying to get to the east dock. Um, difference that we have in the book compared to the movie is we, we don't see the east dock sign. He doesn't crash into that. He he basically loses control a bit, fishtails, thinks he's going to hit a concrete barrier and manages to stop just in time. Uh, and he's all, he's all in a mess about the fact that he's not going to make it and he's got to come up with a new plan to do it the next day and try and liaise with Dodgson to get another boat to come out to the island, which I thought was a bit odd because... I would imagine that the uh, control room could su- had surveillance on the docks, so if Dodgson was going to rock up in a boat or somebody else was going to rock up in a boat for Dodgson to collect these embryos, surely they would you know, they would catch on to that. That bit of the, the story didn't quite make sense to me. I don't know if it made sense to anybody else. Uh, but then we get the whole scene with the Dilophosaurus, so I wondered, uh, Dave, what were your thoughts about this whole part of the book?
8: Um, It's very gruesome. I, I mean, it doesn't <laughs> need to be said. Uh,
10: yeah, I just like the, the part um, where he
8: thinks he's going to get out, get out across the island in like five minutes or something. And he's, yeah. he keeps saying, you know, that it's been too long. You talk about the part where he's going to change his plan, do something else. And like when he gets out and just so in the dark wanders out and he wanders over and he sees the river, I think he walks next to the river. And, you know, that that's just scary that, that he's getting spit at. And then the way it's, it's described when he he realizes he's been blinded and then he realizes he's holding his own intestines. Yeah. That's just so (laughs) gross. And my favorite bit is that the Jeep actually stays on and the headlights shine through the forest. Most of the night and they reference that a few more times.
10: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They do. We, we, we come to that actually not far from, from this point. Uh, Steven, what were your thoughts on that part? I mean, I think
5: to me, the most, interesting thing or one of the most interesting things about this part or or about Nedry's plan and I think because it's one of those things that you just don't question as a kid or at least I did not when I saw Jurassic Park I just assumed Nedry was leaving and so to me reading the book it was this revelation of like and I don't know if it's the same in the movie because I I think they leave it vague but the idea that he is just going to sort of And then come back and pretend like nothing ever like he was just went out for a a piss and a a soda, you know, like that idea. And like to me, that feels more realistic to like actual espionage because it's like it, it seems smarter that he would do this handoff. Pretend like everything is normal, and then when he's done with his job, he can just leave, and everybody's none the wiser. Like actually running away, like you just put a target on your back, basically. So to me, the it was always like to me this was this was like the kind of shocking part of this book of like, oh wow, Nedry was like gonna just hand it off and then go back to work like as if nothing happened. I don't know that that felt very like there to me. There's a through line in Jurassic Park of like that the movies don't really touch on, which is like this kind of industrial espionage The you know, I, th- yeah. I mean, I think that's why people are excited for dominion with, uh, with um, Bowson coming back and dots it like there's all that stuff, especially in the beginning of the book, when you hear about the sort of world of genetics and stuff. And to me, the plan in the book with Nedry felt more like adult and more like thought like, or more, just more like technical Where in the movies, it's like, he's just going to run away with the goods. But that, that's just how I thought
10: about it as a kid growing up. Yeah, no, absolutely. Brad, what, what did you think about that, Pitt?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, everything everybody just said. I, I do like that fact that, like, Dodgson's got his own boat, and it's not like he has to, like, get the stuff <laughs> to the boat before it leaves, you know, because of the storm and all that stuff. Um, so that's interesting to me. Did it take Dodgson's boat 18 hours to get to this island as well? Like, he has to come back yeah. tomorrow. That really sucks. Like... Hey man, sorry you just drove 18 hours. Like, turn around. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but it's so it is just such a brutal moment, and it's you know, I, I I wish we could see something like this, but at the same time, you know, I I appreciate that these are like family movies and 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 stuff like that <laughs> for the most part. So like that really wouldn't fit in there. But reading it, it's just a completely different experience. And I like you in the movie, you don't really like. You see him just like cover his eyes. He's like, ah, but like, and you know, in the back of your head, he's probably blinded and all that stuff. And he hits his head. But like you, you hear him like basically like I'm blind now. Oh gosh. All this that he's like describing it all. And
10: it's just, it's brutal. It's so brutal. My stomach hurt while I was reading it again. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, that I, that bit when he when he says about you know his intest feeling his intestines. Yeah, the, I don't know the way that that's actually written. I, you you could all of it in that moment that you read it. You can you really get that sense that he's just realised that's happened, and then it, yeah. I think his head ends up in the Dilophosaurus's mouth or something like that. Ooh, you know, yeah, and, he, and all he so... can think of is you know please let this be quick. And I just yeah. think you know it is really brutal. We just go <laughs> from this this dodgy guy, and then all of a sudden he's getting completely done over by this by this dinosaur i like the fact yeah. as well that there's a little bit in there about how uh, nedry wanted to meet dodgson in the airport so he could say you know he, he could say dodgson's name in order to record him so that he could kind of use that as blackmail if dodgson didn't come up with the money um, it, it reminded me of the you know Dodgson, We got we got Dodgson here. You know, it was kind of like they, they sort of took that little bit yeah. in the no- novel and thought, well, how can we? I mean, it doesn't make any sense in the novel in a way, apart from the fact that Dodson doesn't want to get recognised. We don't know that Nedry's necessarily recording him, but that was that was the one of the the things I t- I took from that. Mm. Um, and then we get uh, we 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 get a bit with Harding, uh, Gennaro, and uh, Sattler, They're driving through the park, uh, going back come across a fallen tree. So they have to turn around um, and go through the maintenance road, which I quite like. I quite like the idea of the maintenance road. It's just another, a bit like um, going back to Jurassic World, uh, Stephen, with what you were saying earlier, you know, there's these other parts of the park, the sort of infrastructure parts of the park that you don't really think about, even when you're walking around, say Disney or something, there's so much going on that you're just not aware of when you're there as a guest, you know, you just think you just see the main bits.
5: Well, I, I mean, I worked at Disneyland. Uh, that was my first job in high school, and for those who don't know, I guess I'm sorry if I'm ruining the magic of Disneyland, but it's it the 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 Disneyland in California. It's almost like there's two layers. There's like an you know you see the outside of the park, and then you're on the inside, and excuse me, and in between, there's enough space um, for cast members to walk around. There's costuming department. There's an actual restaurant called the in-between that is literally in between the two layers of the park. And that's where all, you know, this is where all the, the um, cast members, excuse me, you know, do their business. And then, you know, to to sort of maintain that illusion, there's really just like almost like a, a seal where like, you you know, regular people aren't supposed to see as well as the underground tunnels, which uh, one time the ice machine broke. I worked at pizza, uh, Pizza Planet, Pizza Port, Pizza Port. It was called that then. Um, and so in order to deliver ice, I had to go into these underground tunnels that seriously look like the Nostromo from Alien. Like it was so spooky down there. You'd go down, so I had to bring like bring a big ice thing, go down, you know, go through these like long tunnels that have little offshoots that you're just like, I don't know what's down here. And then okay. i and then we'd go back up to Club Buzz, get the ice, because you didn't want to ruin the illusion, you wouldn't have some uh you know, a teenager, 17-year-old Steven just wheeling around this ice thing like <laughs> mowing down kids, you know, through tomorrowland. So to me, Crazy anytime. Ice they, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anytime they do stuff, anytime Jurassic Park dives into this, yeah, these maintenance roads, all that stuff, it just brings back these kind of memories for me. And I I love it. Cause yeah, it's like there's there's so much to maintain the illusion of a of you know places like this. And so to me, anytime they bring this stuff up I'm just like oh I want to see yeah. that on the big screen you know
10: yeah yeah I quite like the writing here as well uh, with Crichton because um they stop because they come across some apatosaurs and they're sat there waiting for them to cross the road there and then the next minute we get the uh compies the pro and we get a bit about Harding references the fact that um they go for you know dino poop um <laughs> and also dead animals um, which we've heard about earlier on when we're in the facilities and they're explaining why the pro consignators are on the island but actually we know as the reader that that's that's Nedry that they're heading to um, and then a bit further on from that later on when um, Muldoon's fixing the fences with the with his co-workers again one of the co-workers points out that he can see some headlights Muldoon's got so much on at that point he just says All right you know I'm going to come back to that later so I, I love those details that Crichton puts in there they They don't impact the story, but they kind of make you realise that all these events are happening in and around each other all at the same time. So I think that's quite well written. Um, And then we get the auxiliary radio system, which doesn't work particularly well. There was one in in the Toyotas before they got smashed up, but they do manage to get through to Harding. And we get that sort of broken voice coming through and it's Arnold trying to get through to Harding. And I like the fact that Ellie was in charge of the radios back on the dig sites in Montana. So she's able to decipher what Arnold's saying.
0: And
8: <laughs>
10: they eventually turn the vehicles around and go back. So I thought that was quite a quite a good detail. I also like the fact that Muldoon misses Nedry leave the garage. Because in the way that it's written, he sort of he sort of turns, I think he turns to Arnold or something. Arnold says something to him. And as he turns, he, he misses Nedry shooting off out, out with the Jeep, um, which so happens to be the Jeep that Muldoon's put the... Uh, not bazooka the grenade gun yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. rocket launcher that's the one so that's that's now out of commission as well so it's kind of like going back to the chaos theory all these little things have this huge impact one thing you said dave quite a lot earlier in the conversation it is really weird that they've got like 20 something Mm -hmm. um land cruiser tour vehicles that are electric and you can't drive independently and you've got two jeeps so uh that, that yeah. always struck me as, as a little bit odd. I, I'm not sure why he he wrote it like that. Another well, is, thing as well. Sorry, Stephen. Can't. Oh, I was
5: just going to say. I wonder if this is like a Titanic reference, sort of like not enough lifeboats, yeah. sort yeah. of thing. I wonder if mm. maybe there's some allusions to that, yeah, maybe vaguely. Because yeah, it's that's always such an interesting detail where it's like, no, we got to have room for the for the tour vehicles. We're here to have a good time, like pff, safety, like Hammonds, like yeah, we don't need these gas guzzling jeeps to like mm. you know put smoke in the air and ruin the good time for our guests, you know?
10: Yeah, that's a good point, Mm -hmm. actually. It is a bit like the Hammond thing again, isn't it? Where he makes, he'll make the big investments in the things that he thinks are going to give him the return, but he won't make, he won't make the investments in the infrastructure costs. Another little uh, sideline note that I wrote down. I like the fact that we get to learn that Harding worked for uh, San Diego zoo. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because I like the speech in the lost world when we're in the base camp. Um, And you've got, what's his name? It's completely disappeared. Ludlow. Ludlow. Thank you, guys. Uh, Ludlow (laughs) is saying, you know, we've got San Diego Zoo and all of this kind of stuff. And then the triceratops crashes through. I just quite like the fact that um, Harding worked at San Diego. It kind of puts it into some sort of perspective. So uh, where do we go from here? We get a bit more from Malcolm um, with the chaos theory and then we get to Grant and the kids and they're, they're going through the, the jungle here. Um, and they, He sees the uh, sensors, the fact that they're all numbered um, and I like the fact that he starts following them in decreasing numbers thinking that it's going to lead him back to the, to the main buildings but actually realises they then start counting out again so they go 0.1, 0.2. So actually they're, they're working around a fixed point so he's trying to get it so that he's getting back to the control centre but he doesn't actually know where he's going. And then we get the bit where he climbs the tree and he looks up and he can see the maintenance shed. Um, and they they head out towards the maintenance shed. And we get the quite interesting bit, um, which is a little bit like the movie where um, Lex is goading Tim for the fact that he's scared of heights and he can't climb the electric fence. Um, and we get that with the boats. They've got to climb again at this point and Lex starts taking the mickey out of him. That gets him upset. So I kind of feel like that was a bit of a swap. The same thing happens, but we get it in a different context. Um, And then we then we finally get to the maintenance paddock. They slip in through the rails, put down the hay and you kind of I get this sort of almost this sense of relief at that point. Like I feel there's somewhere, at least in the short term, where they can just stop and breathe for a minute. I don't know what you you guys think of this part of the book, Dave.
8: Uh, We're at the part here where they uh, they, in the morning when they wake up. um, Yeah, I like everything that you just touched on uh, leading up with uh, Grant. And I think that ties all the way back to the beginning of the book where Grant is really a scientist that's in it for the love of science. And you see how he's an intelligent person. He's trying to map out what he's seeing with the sensors and trying to figure out what's going on. You know, he, we already referenced that he memorized the blueprints to the place and everybody else like a uh, uh, woo and everyone else that sort of works here is kind of drawn to the the glory and the money and stuff. And they overlook all these small details and it really shows you, you know, just what someone in, with Grant's position is thinking when he's, you know, looking for weaknesses in this place where he's supposed to be for this weekend. Um, but yeah, I really I like when they wake up in the morning, um, and they uh we see how Tim is kind of being influenced by Grant and um he too has, has noticed things and he's looking for the the raft for the river and that's when they they go and they sneak by the the T Rex. Um and I, I really like that part too. They're so loud at the beginning and you think <laughs> that they would they would wake it and they don't. And then at the end, it just gets real intense with the the T Rex almost getting them, and then it it gets pulled back to the the sort of the real nature, natural part of the uh, story with the young Rex kind of swoop in and it's going to take the kill, and uh, that's how they get saved. Uh, I like that part.
10: Yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree. This is kind of like this whole bit, really, I suppose, where we go from Grant and the kids uh, working their way through the jungle here, right through to the very end bit here with the with the Rex. Which actually takes us through to the fifth iteration so there's quite a lot here you you get this point of safety and then you get this this point of chaos after that where you you know you're really fearing for what might happen Steve, what do you think of this whole bit of the book here no i i mean again to me
5: the the exciting thing because i've grown up reading this book and and it just feels like you know it it just feels like a warm sweater like rereading jurassic park (laughs) like you know and and to me a lot of it is enjoying the parts that aren't in the movies and, you know, the whole maintenance shed and like laying down with the hay, like it's just, you know, it's that kind of stuff where it's like, just trying to imagine and um, you know, just trying to imagine this stuff is just so cool. And yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, it's their journey is like thematically other than of course, the boat stuff, like it's still kind of the same, but it's almost like, again, it's this idea. Peter Jackson talks about when making Lord of the Rings, like, you know, in the non-extended editions, like he, he's like, you know, you could almost imagine that things that that in the book happen in between the moments they show on screen. And sometimes yeah. I like to think about it in that way because you go from, in the movie, you go from uh, Grant and Lex and Tim in the with the Brachiosaurus and then they go... And then they're walking in the trees and discover the eggs. And then they go to the field with the gallimimus and the T-Rex. And then they go to the electric fence. And it's like, it's very, like, it's not as like real time continuous as some of the other characters in the movie. And so you could imagine them taking a break and napping or, you know, or, or, um, you know, or, or that the whole raft thing happens, you know, in the movie, just in between these moments or something like that. Like that's the kind of, that's like, that's where my mind goes when I, it's anytime people are walking from one place to another, it's like they have to kind of do these kind of ellipses in the movies to sort of just pick up the pace. But um, I love that the book can really show you their journey in real time.
10: Yeah. I I agree with that. And and also that the comment you made there about the Lord of the rings. um, I, I agree completely. I've read the novel. Uh, well all three books and there's a I mean there's so much in there it would be a I don't know a week of a movie yeah yeah you'd have to take a a week off work just to just to watch the fellowship to be honest with you there's so much going on I think the movie does a really good job just going off on a side on a sidestep here does a really good job of giving you enough of all of the information if you're a lover of the book you can really appreciate the film for sure and you can imagine all these things are going on in the background and that goes to your earlier point about if you slowed down Jurassic Park, the movie, you could probably fit in Jurassic Park, the novel, and it would it would pretty much make sense as it goes goes through. But right, yeah, I, th- I think with on, Lex and Tim,
5: oh, I was just going to say, I think with Lex and Tim and Grant's stuff, especially, I think, obviously, having Gennaro and Ellie and Muldoon and Hart, you know, all that, their story is, like, very different, you know, in the movie, but I think with Lex and Tim, like, the the real like meat of it is is, almost you know almost the same.
10: Yeah, yeah, definitely, Brad. What what, what are your thoughts on the the bit leading up to them finding the uh, the building here, the safe house, uh, and in the morning where they wake up and there's the baby triceratops and so on?
0: Yeah, I um look, I love the pacing of the movie uh, mm-hmm. tangent, but like they they everything's paced so well outside of like yeah, you could fit a lot of stuff in between Grant stuff, but like it leads and builds to like this crescendo and this kind of like still goes up and down and up and down so there's a lot of like lulls in between and i kind of like that i appreciate like the ability to go do other things and and like go to this sauropod maintenance building and uh i think it was referenced like that building was referenced in like the section just before that and then it like oh hey they found it um and then of course that that baby trike it's like I love that I love that it's just named Ralph and it's just <laughs>
6: <laughs> It's yeah. Ralph. Yeah, it's yeah. just like
0: a re- it's kind of like a reverse Brachiosaurus scene in a way because like Lex is there and like comfortable with the whole situation and like giving like Grant the okay to come in and give some pets and stuff like that. Um yeah, but yeah, it's it's very cool and it kind of mixes like a bunch of things and um and then and there's like that T-Rex stampede moment. Uh there's a there's some I've some quote in there about a myosaurus that, that I guess Grant and Horner like described what it was and I, I took a note of this because I, I thought it was interesting for Fallen Kingdom at least. They mentioned that this myosaurus had an up-curved, up-curved lip which gave it the appearance of smiling and it, like <laughs> that, that made me think because people are still saying constantly uh, whether it's emails or you know twitter or voicemails or whatever that like the the um indoraptor is like is weird because it smiles at the at its prey in a way and i'm like okay well this kind of like maybe they got it from this really This the appearance of smiling so i'm gonna go with that from now on when everybody talks about <laughs> why is that thing smiling I'm like it's just the appearance yeah. it's not really smiling <laughs> but um yeah then they make it to the rafts and that's just like that's amazing like yeah The entire thing um and of course we don't really get that in the movie we get like a bit in jurassic park 3 that's like similar but not really um but like other media has taken this approach like whether it's like jurassic park the ride you know kind of takes this approach with like the the rafts and the wrecks and all this stuff or like uh the jurassic park like game for like sega genesis or whatever like yeah, there's that yeah. whole section where he's got like a little raft with like a, a engine. And I love all that stuff. Like, uh, so
10: more raft usage in films, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, just before we, we, uh, just before I, we go into any detail about that particular sequence, there's one bit that um, I noted with the, um, my, is it the myosaurs? Did you say, sorry? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's the myosaur, isn't it? And, um, we get the, the stampede there with the, the Rex um, and we get a reference to Grant, Lex, and Tim running, and that is a little bit like what we get in the in the movie with the Gallimimus. I can I kind of imagine the same sequence really where they where they're running yeah, towards the sure. camera. There, um, I also like the little bit. Um, another note that I made was that um, that Grant doesn't want to sleep in a tree uh, <laughs> because uh, you know he's gonna he, he, he thinks that that would be a difficult thing. And of course, we get we actually get them sleeping in the tree uh, in the movie. Um, going right back way earlier, just a note here, I don't know how it's dropped right down on the bottom of my notes, but there's an interesting bit where there, where Regis says to Lex that the apatosaurs are the largest animals, uh, largest dinosaurs, and we get Tim thinking, he doesn't mention it, but he thinks, well, actually, that's not true because Brachiosaurus is the largest, uh, largest dinosaur. And I thought that was quite interesting because obviously we get the, the Brachiosaurus in the movie there. But the other bit I liked about the stampede was that they see the stampede from the control room, but they have to shut down the power temporarily, which is why they miss Grant waving at the sensors. (laughs) So that's just these tiny, small moments of missed opportunity. You know, everything would be over and it'd be easy. they just head out to the sauropod paddock, pick them up, but they miss it. And also, uh, I think, Brad, you said earlier, there's a reference to this in a scene before, and it's where uh, Arnold's talking to Muldoon, and he's saying about they've. I think they've got three or four fences down, and they've fixed three of them or two of them. And they go to the last fence, and it's the fence into the sauropod paddock. And uh, he says, "I'm going to have to come. I'm going to have to come back this to this in the morning." And that's interesting because, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, "Well, they. You know that Grant's made it to the sauropod uh, feeding pen." so they're safe for now, but why is there a hole in that fence? Yeah, And then it kind of made me think a bit of the Indominus when he's with the Ankylosaurs in Jurassic World and you see the fence smashed open. Mm. And I just immediately imagined that. I could imagine that hole in the fence. And you're thinking, they're safe for now, but, you know, trouble trouble's on the horizon. Yeah. And the last, the last note I made for this section is, uh, Grant tests whether or not the dinosaur's vision is based on movement because he's trying to... Uh, He's trying to get the, I think it's a hadrosaur, to notice him. And he only notices him when he moves or if Le- when Lex wakes up. That startles the dinosaur. And that is also referenced as being a frog um, thing, um, amphibians. If an insect doesn't move, the frog doesn't see it. So you get a little bit more of the sort of science behind that thought.
2: Hmm.
10: Stephen, did you have a thought there? Though? Oh, no, I just was... I just...
5: Just this sequence, it's just... Any time, like you know we again the you know moments are played out in the movie very like you know they feel very iconic to us but it's like just getting to see grant interact with the dinosaurs more and more is always exciting you know i I think about you know when grant was like holding the raptor at the beginning in the book they go more into it but yeah just him interacting with the dinosaurs here is just you know it's he's the dinosaur expert you want him to experience that i think dave you were saying that earlier you know it's like this guy loves dinosaurs, you know, and so anytime he gets a chance to like be curious, it's always I think Crichton writes that really well of like somebody who's like finally getting to see the. I mean, it's kind of like Sarah Harding in The Lost World. She's like, I've been I'm yeah. sick of scratching around and bone and rock for, you know, so yeah. the actual opportunity to be here with these dinosaurs and test out these hypotheses and these theories is just yeah. like, it's just the best.
10: I think Crichton writes something like that. He says something like, you know, in the back of his mind, Grant's doing a science experiment. Um, so even yeah. though he's living this real life, horrific real life experience, um, life or death experience, somewhere in his mind, he's still a scientist and he still loves dinosaurs and he's still intrigued by what's What's actually playing out in front of him, and he wants to know more. He's not—he's curious, isn't he? He's not happy to just accept that he's in this horrible situation. <laughs> he actually wants to al- almost take something away from it at the same time. For sure, yeah. yeah. There's there's
0: an so, expansion like on that line from the film, like who better than a dinosaur expert to get them through the park? It's somewhere before this, I think, but like Ellie says that I think, or ha- I forget yes, who says right. it. But like it, it's expanded upon, like where she says something like. Yeah, once he got lost in the Badlands, or like the the ground gave way, and he's in the desert for like four days, no food or water, and he's got a broken leg, and he finds his way back. So it gives us like gives us like a myth of who Dr. Grant is, you know, and it gives him much more experience. He's not just some like random guy that's that's able to get through this park. Like he sort of is in the movie. There's not like a greater myth to who Grant is, you know. He's just a guy who digs up some bones, but like here you get a little bit more as to why he's very good at this.
1: Mm-hmm.
10: Yeah, definitely. You're absolutely right about that, Brad. It, 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 we do get that story. And I think it's where, when uh, Muldoon goes back to see Ellie and uh, asks her to go and help look after Malcolm with Harding. Um, and, and that's when uh, he sa- she says, you know, who better, who, who better to get them through the park than a dino- dinosaur expert. One, one thing that struck me as a little bit odd with the writing um it doesn't bother me really but it's odd that there's no doctor on the island i think you know we get the scene right at the very beginning of the novel with regis uh, in the chopper um flying out to the little costa rican village there where we get is it doctor um my gosh her name escapes me all of a sudden
8: is it gutierrez
10: no gutierrez is the Uh, guy with the the can't remember her name but you know we've already had that so they've already had to get somebody off the the island when Regis is saying oh he was attacked by the backhoe and actually he was attacked by the raptor and it always just struck me as a little bit odd in the writing that they don't have a doctor on the island because you would think if you have a vet for the dinosaurs you'd have a doctor for the <laughs> <laughs> for the humans but... well yeah
5: you could see it as Hammond wanting he's like I don't want to scare the visitors by showing mm-hmm. a hospital on this island or you know yeah. but it's like Even at uh, (laughs) recently, I learned, or not recently, but when Universal Studios is opened, uh, when I got a pass at Universal Studios for the first time, my friend who goes was like, oh, well, you can go to the, there's like a doctor, like there's like a first aid office at Universal Studios, you can get sunscreen, you can get Advil if you got a headache, like, you know, there's this, like some Universal hacks, like, have yeah you're you're totally right that like it's very odd that they wouldn't even have like a basic first aid Yeah, because even i'm trying to remember in the cars in the book do they describe them as having because i was always fascinated by like you know when grant pulls up on the flare and the flashlights mm-hmm. but like there's got to be a first aid kit back there but i wonder if hammond's like no i don't want to give people the appearance that you could get hurt like it's not even an option it's like <laughs> Come on, like something could ha- somebody could trip and fall. I mean, yeah. Tim Tim <laughs> tri- Tim falls in the movie. You know, he you know he falls when he's trying to walk over to visit the triceratops. Like accidents happen. You know, much less you know dinosaurs could potentially eat you.
10: Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it is a lot of detail, but then I suppose it would make it less important to get the power back on to get a chopper to the island to get Malcolm. So I, I wonder if that's why he sort of I don't know tried to write it in that way so that, that, that there was more of a reason. Uh, to get the power back mm-hmm. on because people's yeah. lives were at risk or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. The whole
8: mystery of the book might be lost too with the in the beginning if they just had a doctor to work on the the guy who gets attacked by the raptor at the beginning. Yeah. You know, then there yeah. would be no setup for the where we're going in this book <laughs> and why the mystery starts and.
10: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So I suppose yeah, yeah. by leaving that out, it kind of allows a lot of expansion of the story, doesn't it? So I think I think I'm right and saying last but not least um we've touched on it a bit already but we we get the scene with the with the raft there so tim says to to grant that he he sees he's seen a boat or a, he's seen a raft down at the lagoon and they they notice that the uh the rex is down at the lagoon but the rex is asleep so we get the whole bit where they go over to the to the building there and they're looking for the looking for the raft um i think he finds a um not a harpoon gun um uh, a dart gun or something like that which he which he pockets and then finds a, a plan of the uh, the lagoon and the river and the route that it can take them back to the visitor center so grant formulates the plan to to get the raft he goes down onto the pontoon there finds it and i, lo- I love the way that uh, he has to inflate the raft i think that cinematic feels really cinematic to me that bit i can imagine the suspense i know <laughs> spielberg's got a great knack of not having any score at all like when the t-rex attacks in the movie there's just no music at all all we get is the rain and i think it really feels really human and you can imagine yourself in that moment and i really took that from the raft when he's inflating the raft i can just imagine no noise whatsoever rex is asleep over on the bank there and i imagine it being quite a sunny warm quiet day and all of a sudden you've got this you know, this raft <laughs> expanding and everyone's thinking, well, that's going on. And of course the Rex sort of lifts his head, but falls back to sleep again. And then we get the finale in the lagoon and the, and the Rex coming after them. So I wondered uh, Dave, what are your thoughts on this, this last bit before we get to the fifth iteration?
8: Um, I think I said some stuff about it earlier, but I um, yeah. can't think of any specific examples, but like you're saying in a movie, you know, it's like you're not trying to wake the sleeping giant. Yeah. You know, and it's it's very comical because you think it would wake it up, and it really gets woken up at the end by by Lex. But um, yeah, I mean, I you know that would be real life. Uh, the shrill little voice would definitely wake it up, and <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. it's cool to see, um, you know, the the T Rex actually swimming and and how swift it is through the water and coming at them and everything. And I think I like I already said before about seeing. Um, that's very. You see in the in the documentaries and stuff, um, when there are kills by like a lion or something, and a jackal or hyena or something is always trying to come in and take the scraps and stuff. And that's very much what the young yeah. rex does. And I like that uh, again, grounding it back to these are animals and not just monsters.
10: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, Stephen. What what were your thoughts on this particular part in the lagoon here?
5: Well, I had to bring some show and tell, obviously, sorry, listeners, but this, <laughs> the Crash McCreary, Sleeping Rex, so you talking to the mic, the Crash McCreary, um, Sleeping Rex concept art has always, because I got these cards, you know, first before I read the book. And so the Sleeping Rex, this image has always like, that's what I imagine when I read the book. And it it's just that notion again, like you're saying, Dave, that these are animals, like, it's it's cool in the book that we get these, you know, we get more of, a, we, we almost get like examples of moments of these as animals. It's not just like, here's a moment where they represent, you know, a monster and here's a moment where they represent an animal. It's like you get a fuller spectrum. Like the T-Rex gets to be, the T-Rex is almost like humanized a little bit more in that way, you know, of like yeah. just getting to watch it sleep. And it's just like, you know, probably like brushing the flies away and it's just like yeah i don't know it's just it's such a cool you know it it, it's just every time you think about dinosaurs it's just like whoa like these (laughs) things were real you know
10: yeah yeah it's definitely written like that brad what are your thoughts on this last sequence that we get in the in the lagoon here and the 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 intrepidation and the the fear that that they face yeah i
0: i uh i love this moment so so much and i'm kind of sad that like I don't think we're ever gonna get like a sleeping T-Rex scene. Like this is like such a big moment from this book that's just left out of any film or anything like that. You know, they're always mining, but the the only chance we've ever gotten of that I think is that obviously in Fallen Kingdom, that it was tranked. It was a bit different, like the Rex there. Not as I think this scene in the book is way better than than that moment, uh, as far as what I would wanna see. Um, but we have gotten, like, iterations of, like, dinosaurs sleeping lately with, like, season two of Camp Cretaceous. You got, like, a huddle of, like, Baryonyx sleeping, you yeah. know, together. So cute. And then a compy was sleeping, or a few compies or whatever. Like, I just want more of that. That is so awesome to see, like, such a – you don't really see things like that. I mean, I, I feel like I don't ever see animals sleeping outside of, like, my cats and dog. Like, I want to <laughs> see, like – I just want to see, like – something massive just asleep there and people trying to tiptoe by it like i really would love that kind of scene but uh it, this is just such a fun moment just like the whole chase sequence and the the swimming and running and and all that stuff in the in the water and uh um you know the the little rex coming back again and and uh i think uh i forget who mentioned it before but like you had like it's more naturalistic stuff you know seeing these two fighting yeah. over the prey and stuff like that. Yeah. So I love that kind of thing. I mean, I, I rewatched, um, uh, Kong skull Island recently. And there's like a moment in that movie where like Kong's just washing his body off. And then like, you know, something kind of like gets at him and he just like rips it out. And then he just starts eating it. And it's like a natural <laughs> moment. Like you don't really get a lot of that with Jurassic. So it's good to have that kind of stuff in a, in a book.
10: Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, and, um, yeah, because a lot of the time the dinosaurs, particularly with Jurassic, um, they're there for the impact. You know, they're yeah. huge, they're scary, they're moving fast, everyone's running. But just sometimes when, like you say, they're just sleeping. And I mean, that that in itself, that is so scary because he's asleep and effectively has isn't posing a threat. That in itself is threatening because it kind of lulls you into this false sense of security. The last thing you want to happen is for him to wake up. So there's so much room to build the tension there.
4: Um,
10: One note I put down, which I know it's not movie, but in Camp Cretaceous, um, I can't remember the episode, I think it might be seven in in the first series there, you get them in the lagoon, uh, in the rafts, and Mm -hmm. they're paddling across and we get the the Mosasaur and the rippling of the Mosasaur through the water. And that felt very much like it might have been taken from the novel. It has the same sort of feeling about it um i also like the fact that grant realizes that the Rex isn't necessarily swimming it's just massive so when it's wading through the water there um you know tim says of course it can swim but i I just wonder is it actually swimming or is it so (laughs) walking yeah yeah because its head's sort of kind of disappearing away and grant's thinking please you know we don't need shallow water because this thing's gonna this thing's gonna come back at us Uh, another thing as well with um with Lex being the younger character, and I was saying earlier about her whining and and so on, she's well placed for this sequence, mm-hmm. wanting the water, you know, having a cough, wanting the water and gurgling the water. And Tim's like, Lex, shut up, you know, <laughs> she, because she's so young, she she knows she's in this danger, but she can't contextualize it properly. She just she, she needs the water. She's having a drink, and she's not really thinking at the same time that that, that yeah. could well wake wake up the rex i felt 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 a lot like lex uh,
0: because i i have that moment where like i get a terrible tickle in my throat and i got a cough and it's just like the worst possible moment so i really felt for her in this situation and like that's
10: terrible Yeah.
5: (laughs) Yeah, yeah i was gonna say i i you know having a um i mean my sister and i are almost the same age but she's just like a little bit younger than me and So I always grew up liking, you know, as much as I prefer the dynamic in the movie, but this is like a moment where it really feels like I feel, you know, because like Lex and Tim are like a great sibling because they don't fight all the time, but you know, siblings do fight. And so for me, it's like, of course he can swim, you little idiot. Like, (laughs) just like Tim, like losing it on her. And it's just like, you, you're like, you're like, like Brad, like you're saying, it's like, you really feel like, and, and again, I think maybe Spielberg made Lex older to maybe and made her more sympathetic and kind of air quotes in a bigger sense. But like in this moment, I think it's like, yeah, like this sucks. Like, you know what I mean? Like you, <laughs> you, you have a tickle in your throat, you're coughing. It's the most dangerous moment of your life. But like these little human details, this chaos yeah. gets thrown yeah. into the mix and it's, yeah. Um, yeah, there's just all the tension here is just, even with the, the, how you were saying like at bed, like the shallowness of the water and how it starts to get shallow again. And like the T-Rex starts to get taller and it was like, Oh, it's, it is Dave. You talk about how Creighton, you know, writes So cinematically. And I think this is another sequence that I almost think that like, if because of just reading like the behind the scenes books and stuff, like the, the Jody Duncan stuff, like talking about the process of making this movie and Spielberg really like what were his favorite moments and yeah you could really see that in an alternate timeline, instead of the road attack, we got the raft sequence instead because it feels as big as the road attack to me.
10: I I, I wondered as well, whether or not perhaps they left it out because practically speaking in 1992, when they filmed it, um, dunking a whole
5: T-Rex in the water.
10: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, I've read before and um, heard actually Brad on, on the podcast there about the animatronics. The, the the wrecks got wet when they were filming the main road sequence and the, the hydraulics started to shake or move and yeah. they, it wasn't beha- behaving very well. So I just think, what would happen if they just, like, dropped that in <laughs> <laughs> drop that into a lake or something? It's know? like Jaws,
5: you know? The shark doesn't work, you know?
10: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Like, you'd have to go down the CGI route with with something like that, wouldn't you? I would imagine.
5: Mm. Yeah, yeah, what did they do for the Spinosaurus in the water in Jurassic Park 3? I, when, I think... You know, when you see the fin through the water was that, that animatronic it? I'm not or sure that about CGI? the fin
10: I think there's I think the attack itself so when they've got when they're being attacked in the boat itself I'm pretty sure um I'm pretty sure that's animatronic but I'm not yeah. sure about the fin there but the it's funny you mentioned that because that that feels a bit like uh like the wrecks coming through the water there as well doesn't it you know when you've got the spinosaurus I would say mm-hmm. actually Jurassic part three does have a few um does have quite a few nods from the book in it as well um, you know, we we see quite a, a you know what ob- the, the obvious one is the Avery, which we, yeah. <laughs> we get to later on. You know, that's very much feels like it's taken its inspiration from the book. But yeah, so we end this particular scene. Um, the they, the juvenile Rex comes along. The big Rex heads off after the juvenile, straight past the uh, hadrosaur, the dead hadrosaur there, and and chases him off. Which, like you were saying, Brad, does it just feels like normal behaviour. It's like watching a, a nature documentary or something, that is literally yeah. what would happen. You know, The Rex would just lose interest in these little people in the raft because the, the juvenile T-Rex shows up. Although, another thing that sort of struck me as being odd, but it, it makes sense for the story to have the juvenile. Of course it does, there's so many times along the way that, that the, the, the two Rexes have a bearing on the story. but. With Hammond putting so much value on these animals and and wanting to care for them, make sure they're okay, it would seem like an odd thing to do to put two carnivores of the same species (laughs) with a different age gap uh, in the same, you know, in the same territory, uh, because you would imagine that eventually they're going to have to come across each other. I would have thought, but I don't know. I don't know what the long term plan for that was, because obviously the juvenile is going to get bigger as well. So I don't know if if anybody had any thoughts on, on that that particular bit
5: i mean i mean but in zoos they have multiple lions multiple yeah uh, i think tigers are always solo maybe i could be wrong about that but uh i know like jaguars and leopards they'll have multiple cheetahs i think that they'll they'll have Mm. together but yeah, and I definitely know lions, obviously, but like yeah. I think tigers maybe are so low. But that could that's one of those trial and error things where it's like, oh no, we shouldn't have put these two things together because <laughs> yeah. you know they kill the the young, you know, the young ones or whatever uh, yeah. because yeah. they're a threat to the to the pride or whatever.
10: It works for the book though, so I think that you know that's the main thing: the fact that, that they keep interacting in this way and it has a bearing on the fate of the humans. Uh, with yeah. regis and the guys in the raft there i think it i think it's i think it's really good that they that he did actually write it in that way so so that's it as far as the actual this section of the book's concerned, you know we've gone from the tour right the way through here to the fifth iteration there's quite a lot more still to come um, and it gets even more messy and and more chaotic so i've got a few sort of wrap up questions just to ask everybody first one being um in, in your opinion um, although there's many, what do you feel is the biggest difference from the uh different biggest difference as in the biggest difference of a scene from the movie to the novel dave what was what would you say about that?
8: um, we're going with scene or just any difference at all like a character just,
10: yeah, any difference really the biggest difference
8: the biggest difference i guess is is probably Hammond um you know, he's so warm and loving in the in the movie you know he's <laughs> here's your grandpa, and in this one they even i think he references he even says he's just like walt disney a bad walt disney or something and he's just you know it's quite obvious he doesn't care that the bit about him saying that he wouldn't cure cancer you know could you yeah. imagine uh you know the other hammond in the movie saying something like that now <laughs> so yeah i will go with hammond it's he's quite different you know
10: yeah yeah no, that's that's a fair point i mean he is almost polar opposites to to what we get in the movie dave what uh steven what was your what were your thoughts Ooh, i mean the hammond one is really good I mean, that's truly like,
5: it's such a, I mean, I think more of just like the overall um, vibe. And I mentioned this earlier, that sense of control that I think with Jurassic park, the book movie, it is a, once the thing starts spiraling out of control, it's, it's, that's how it goes. And this part of the, it's, it's, it was fun to talk about this part of the book because it's kind of the meat of the movie if that makes sense. Like this is like really the bulk of the movie. I think like the biggest differences between the book and the movie are at the beginning and the end. And this, in this area is almost like the most similar overall. Um, But I think that the vibe is different when to me, the vibe is very different when it's all out of control versus in the book. It's this kind of like, we keep trying to grasp at the control and it keeps Mm -hmm. eluding us. And I think to me, that's the thing that I really lock into when reading the book is this idea of like, okay, well, you know, power's out, but we got the auxiliary power on. Oh no, but this, okay, wait, we're going to try and clean up. It's like somebody trying to juggle all these plates and they just keep crashing. And so I, to me, that's like the biggest difference in a part of the book that we talked about that to me is overall still the most similar to the movie, if that makes sense
10: yeah no definitely it's like when ellie says it's this is uh you, you never had control
5: yeah.
0: it's yeah. all
10: an illusion it's kind of it's so well written that line because actually that's that's the whole story in a nutshell really isn't it yeah brad what were your thoughts on 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 the biggest difference whether it be a character or part of the book or hmm. part of the story
0: i you know i i think all those ones were perfect um i was thinking along the lines of like uh, like Dr Wu feels a bit different from me um yes. in in a lot of instances and like specifically that whole conversation that he has with Hammond, and um which is kind of kind of like a take on the conversation he has with Ms Ronnie in Jurassic world but it's the opposite it's like straight up the opposite like in, in the book he's arguing that like, he wants these dinosaurs to be slower and more docile, but like in the movies and, you know, he doesn't really state this in Jurassic Park, the movie, but like he just wants basically bigger and more teeth. And that's what that, you know, the two of them discuss that together, Mizrani and Wu. It's like, you know, he, Wu seems like he just really wants to like progress and do this like crazy stuff. And obviously we, we know there's like, there feels like there's a bigger scheme behind him and whatever he's doing in the films um but i feel like that's a big difference is like his viewpoint on dinosaurs and like in in this he kind of flip-flops a little bit in the book he's like he says something like dinosaurs are real these dinosaurs are real but then like flip-flops it like a minute later and says like no these nothing about these are real (laughs) like these aren't real i made them these way this way they're this isn't real at all so it's like i don't know he's not as like uh firm
10: as he is in the movie at least yeah, yeah, no, he is. He's definitely, he's definitely written a bit differently. And like you say, in in uh, Jurassic World, we kind of get that sequence, but but in reverse, he he, mm-hmm. he does. He completely changes it up. But I do wonder if they, if Trevorrow or the other the writers for um, Jurassic World took at least took that scene and and the the fact for that sure. he's saying to to Hammond about him wanting them to be more real, and then flipping it in the movie, he, they kind of pulled the inspiration from that particular particular part. But I I agree completely. I think Hammond's completely different. (laughs) Wu is definitely different. You know, there's quite a lot of differences, but weirdly, at the same time, you can accept them in the book and uh, the novel and the movie as almost being the same character. Even though they they do have different roles, what I mean by that is I personally struggle to put a different face to these characters when I'm reading the book. I don't know if anybody else finds that, but yeah, it's really obviously Regis. We we have to we can use our imagination, like you were saying much earlier on, Stephen. But everybody else, as hard as I try, even when I'm imagining evil, Mr Hammond, I'm still <laughs> I've got Attenborough <laughs> sitting on my shoulder, going, "I'm still here, you know, don't, don't I, forget me."
5: So my question is. When reading this book now, do you imagine Grant, do you imagine Sam Neil with a beard but younger as this version of Alan Grant? Because he has a beard in the in the book, right?
10: Yeah, yeah, wearing trainers, jeans, and a
5: Hawaiian shirt. But yeah, it's like I can, like part of me is like, oh, do I, now can I see young Sam Neill? But now that I've seen Sam Neil with a yeah. beard, it's like, can I just like copy, paste, you know, yeah. put on?
10: Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I I know what you're saying. I just, even though the the age reference there, I just, I just can't help but sit, but see Grant there. Um, mm-hmm. he just immediately, it's the same with Ellie. I like, quite like actually earlier on as well. We get the bit where Tim says to Grant, "Are you going to marry Ellie?" She, he's like, "No, she she's marrying a doctor over in Los <laughs> Angeles or, or wherever it is." And then in the film, obviously they're an item. So that was yeah. kind of that was that was a change that I that I picked up on there. Um, well, I mean, I, th- I think we're pretty much there, really. We've we've talked about everything. I just wanted to get everyone's last thoughts on this part of the novel. Uh, personally speaking, I I love the whole novel, but I love this bit uh, because we get so many different levels. We get the science and the explanations as to you know the breeding, how the dinosaurs are bred and how how they how they came to be. We get Hammond and the mo- the money motivation and the success of the park being based on his greed. We get the information about the lack of in- infrastructure and all the, the problems that we're going to face. And then we get the different human stories and we get different, we get um, a different view of the dinosaurs, the dinosaur's behaviors. We see the docile Dilophosaurus at the river early on. And then he's, you know, he's ripping out the intestines on Ledry a bit later. <laughs> so for me, I, I just love the layers of the book and all of the little missed opportunities, like we were saying earlier, where uh, Muldoon's co-worker spots the headlights, or the co- uh, pro proconsignators are going after Nedry's carcass, but they have to turn the jeep round. So I love all those little details. So just to wrap things up, uh, Dave, have you got any last thoughts on this section of the novel?
8: Um, this this section of the novel is is nice. It's it's really a lot packed in there, as you said, and it's kind of almost like its own story in itself. It, it's it's after the mystery uh, that we find out in the first third. And it's got almost like a three-act part of the uh, of the middle third. You know, there's the part where we're, we're on the tour. We're learning about the island. We're learning about the faults. And then there's where it goes wrong. And then you could almost look at the T-Rex as like an escape at the, at the third part, third act part. But yeah, it, it's, it's self-contained kind of. If you don't want to read the rest of it, you know where <laughs> it's going. It's most similar to the movie. And that part I enjoyed a lot too. And you were saying about the characters. I tr- consciously tried to imagine someone else. But when the dialogue yeah. strayed, too close to the film, I would imagine, the actor. But yeah, this was a this was a great part, and I'm glad we got to do this middle third. It was a lot of fun.
10: Yeah, because we get the crop and paste of uh, Malcolm's speech about Life Finds A Way, don't we? I mean, it's literally... Yeah, it's in it's two pretty parts, much yeah. Word, word for word there. And actually, just while I'm still with you, Dave, on the with the toy and the, the toy photography that you do over on Instagram there, I just wonder, uh, a little question on the side, if you were to pick any particular scene from this part of the novel that we've discussed to shoot um with the toys what, what would you go for maybe the
8: stampede is the first thing that comes to mind with some of the the toys that mattel is putting out um you know get some kicked up dust or something in the t-rex and some of the yeah. you know the action figures of grant and the kids and if we ever get them um in the foreground or something yeah that that i can visualize in my head you know that part is it's in the daytime sunlight yeah. shining down and stuff i just like that part with the confusion that that he paints and how you can't really see what's going on yet there's a a scuffle yeah. you know it's it's like in the film with the the gallimimus uh, chase but you really don't know what's going on yeah yeah so that maybe something cool. like
10: that yeah it'd be cool actually one day to see a, a whole um a gallery of uh toy photography collectible photography based on the novel uh, storyline as opposed to the movie that that could be quite cool i know um vector that fox who illustrated the 30th uh, and um, edition of the novel there for folio society Uh, She drew, uh, it didn't make, it didn't make the the book, but she drew a a scene with the, uh, with the stampede, with the Rex in the background there and all the dust coming forward. So you're right. That would look, that would look cool. That's a great image of that. And I can imagine it shot as, uh, as photography as well. Stephen, what were your uh, last thoughts on this section of the novel?
5: Well, I think, I mean, like I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier about kind of the key differences between the book and the movie, I, it's. I mean, it's just, just reading the book is just so. Again, like I said before, it's just such a warm, just like a warm sweater, and I just, yeah, I don't know, I, I kind of, I mean, I feel like I kind of hit on everything that I was thinking, but it, it, yeah, it's, it's just such a cool. I don't know, I, I lost my words for any eloquence at this moment. Read. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just, I mean, you know, uh, if you are. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I wonder. I was like, I was very, we've very spoiled everything if you were planning on reading the book. But uh, you know, yeah, we're, if,
10: gonna, we're gonna have to put a spoiler alert at the start of this, Brad, I think. <laughs> But I, but <laughs> I mean, if you
5: if you are somebody who's like listening to this and you haven't read the books in a while, like truly, yeah. the book is is so it it's so good and it it's just it really captures all you know, like again, why we love this stuff in the first place. I mean, there's just yeah. I always found it very ironic that Crichton was very distrustful of scientists because, you know, he got disillusioned with medical school and dropped out. I mean, you read the terminal man and that's somebody, man, who hated medical school. Like it's right there on the page. And I, yeah, and every time I read a Crichton book, I'm always thinking about like, what, what were his disillusions that caused him to write this? Or like, what, what is he like trying to work through in a sense? And um, with Jurassic park, it's like, it's, it's, ultimately this book and I think that the middle chapter we talked about like grant, just like loving dinosaurs. It's somebody who's like trying to remember why they love what they do in the first place. And so it's people confronted with like the horrifying reality of like, you know, whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And so I I think if you, if you were going to reread the book, like having that kind of in mind, I think kind of makes it, I don't know. There's, there's almost like a sadness of like, you know, the, the, uh, that loss of innocence, you know, it's like we finally got to create these creatures that we love and imagined as kids. And it's not what we expected. And they're not going to, again, like, you know, you said earlier with Ellie's line, you know, you never had control. That's the illusion. So it's like the danger is, is not in dreaming of this stuff and wanting dinosaurs to come true. I mean, we always talk about like, would you go to Jurassic park? But then it's like, Having to confront that horrifying reality of like, oh, I always wanted to see a dinosaur. Well, now I'm on the other side of that. And do I wish that I still wanted this? It's the monkey's paw, you know. Yeah. I don't know that. That to me is like when I reread the book, uh, all that stuff kind of just comes into my head. So.
10: No, definitely, you make some excellent points. And yes, I definitely would go to Jurassic Park. Just want to put it out there, (laughs) even even if my fate wasn't the best, I I think I'd I'd have to sacrifice myself just to get on that island. Yeah. I'm there. I'm going. Brad, <laughs> what what are your what are your last uh, thoughts for for this section of the novel?
0: Well, yeah, I I also would go to the park, no question. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, a lot of what everybody said. It's 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 a, a familiar portion of the book. You know, when you uh, when I read through the first third of the book, I was like, a lot of this feels very different. You know, not very much like the the film in a lot of ways. But as soon as we hit this. Like, all of a sudden, it feels so the same. Uh, and obviously, there's a major differences that we talked about, but, like, it felt comforting, and I, I really appreciated that. Um, but, you know, a lot of the things that are in this section in particular, which kind of – I can say that about probably every section, but I've really missed a lot of these things and, and uh, hope to see these things yeah. again someday. You know, like, one day, maybe, even though we've seen things that are similar – like with Spinosaurus on the water, or Sleeping T Rex and on the boat in *Fallen Kingdom*. Like, I'd still want to see some of these iconic moments like brought to life in some way, um, because yeah, they're just awesome. But yeah, I, I don't know. I love this section, and uh, I think over time, because I, I like Dave. I know you said you didn't you hadn't read it in a while either, and I I don't. I think I read it or at least listened to it since *Jurassic World*, but I don't I don't remember. But um, in my mind, this this section felt more distant from the film. But rereading it again, I'm, I was just surprised, like how close mm-hmm. it actually is.
10: Yeah, yeah. No, you, you make some good points there. And actually, you're right. The first uh, the first segment, the first um, third of the novel, um, is covered off quite quickly in the movie version of this story. Mm-hmm. You know, they managed to with Joffrey and the 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 raptor attack at the beginning there and Mr DNA uh, uh, doing his uh, presentation to them all. And we see a little bit of the lab there and we meet Wu. That's all quite quite quick in the novel. And it's kind of like, uh, sorry, in the movie, I beg your pardon. But in the novel, it's that whole first third. Whereas like you said, Brad, now we're in this middle section, we're actually getting quite a lot of what we see in the film. Yeah. So uh, so yeah. No, it's 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 great. Well, guys, thank you uh, very much. I've I've had a really excellent time uh, this evening. I have to be honest with you. It's been it's been really great uh, chatting all things Jurassic. Um, I love this book. I love the fact that you guys love this book, and um, I'm I feel like I'm amongst the, the Jurassic big hitters here. It's a, it's an absolute uh, it's an absolute pleasure for me to to talk all things Jurassic with you, particularly the novel. I think it's it's a it's a great piece of work, and ultimately, it's it is the thing that started it all. You know, all of the the toys, all of the collectibles, all of the chat that we have, all of the 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 excellent podcasts that you guys produce, and all of the content that Dave, the stuff that you do over on Instagram, it's it's all from this book. So it's kind of the roots of it. Are, are are all in this in this novel that we're that we're all that we've all been reading together so um you know we've got the last bit to come um that's coming up in may which i'm really looking forward to um, and we get to see what happens you know the story is very much built now you know grant and the kids they're they're out in the park you know what's going to happen to them really we know that rex it hasn't necessarily gone away <laughs> Uh, spoiler alert there so um just going around to everybody like we like we've done this evening um i just wanted to ask where people can find you so i'm going to come over to you first dave
8: um i'm on instagram under jurassic dave 93 also same twitter handle jurassic dave 93 over on twitter um i have a youtube channel hardly ever put any videos up but if you guys want to check that out there's probably like five toy videos up there uh jurassic dave 93 but yeah thank you for inviting me on uh it was a pleasure it was an honor had a lot of fun speaking with you guys tonight
10: brilliant that's great thanks ever so much dave uh steven where can uh, where can people find you uh well they can find me at Stephen ray morris
5: uh on all the things and then see jurassic right um i also have a star wars book club podcast speaking of book clubs uh right. that i've been doing everything but the movie uh, EBTM Star Wars over there so it, it this was such a pleasure and you know reading the reading all the Star Wars stuff and then getting to do that with you guys for Jurassic Park was just you know because I think with the obviously with the pandemic and the rescheduling of Dominion it just kind of felt like you know we were building up towards this release you know that would you know Dominion would be coming out in like less than two months now and yeah. I kind of was feeling a little lost of like what do I do like what you know how do we all the normal sort of getting excited, you know, Brad and I've talked before, but it's like, you know, and now we have this extra year of like what to do. And (laughs) I don't know, this was just such a, it was so much fun to chat with you guys and just made me kind of like, Oh, now I'm just kind of reinvigorated to just, you know, there's so, there's so much Jurassic still to explore so many nooks and crannies. And yeah, this was just so much fun. And, yeah, I'm just like I'm like, oh man, I want to go and you know pl- replay this video game. I want to go do this now. So yeah, you know, thank you, yeah. thank you again. Yeah, this was so so much fun.
10: Oh, it's been great. Thank you, thank you very much, Stephen and Brad. Where can people find you? <laughs> uh, well, right here on this show mostly. And <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Have you uh, podcast before?
0: Eh, a few times, just a little. Um, but yeah, I don't really promote my Twitter all that much. I guess at Brad Joes, go follow me.
10: <laughs> okay uh, and I, I you, you pop up on a couple of other podcasts as well don't you I believe
0: I do yeah I do a theme park podcast where we talk about uh, Disney Universal and just pop culture stuff we've got a Godzilla versus Kong review oh I don't know when everything's coming out but around this time just check out the feeds it's called Grim, Grim Grinning Hosts so go check out that one my other podcast okay. I don't I, we never even record anymore I don't
10: even know when that's happening again yeah <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. OK, guys, well, um, I think uh, we should uh, we should sign off. So once again, from me, massive, massive thank you to you all. Um, really, really appreciate you giving up your time. And, um, well, I'm looking forward to this coming out and, and everybody getting the chance to listen. So thanks very much. Yet again, we've had some excellent thoughts and opinions from you, the Jurassic Park community. I hope you enjoyed this episode and a big thank you for sending in your thoughts on the second third of the novel. Before we go ahead and play everyone's messages... A reminder that episode 3, the fifth iteration to the end, is out on May the 10th. I hope you can join us then.
9: Hi guys, Brad here with some feedback for the middle half of Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. I'm sure all the good bits have already been discussed with Ben and his uh, guests, but I thought I'd focus on the little-known sections of the film that fans might not have any idea on uh, if they haven't read the book. I love the book. It needed to be cut down for the film as there's so much going on uh, over there and over those three days on this maneuver. Uh, the only negative thing I can say about the novel is uh, Lex Murphy, so let's move on to some positives. The novel is so rich with detail, many of which aren't on uh, aren't in the film because of time. or uh, the viewers just don't need to know. Uh, one example of this is why one of the most iconic vehicles in film history looks the way it does. Yes, production design is made that way, but the iconic red stripe over sand beige for the gas powered Jeeps uh, has no practical explanation in the films, but instead has its roots in the first novel. And here I've got a quote. The Jeeps are painted with a diagonal red stripe because for some reason it discouraged the Triceratops from charging the car. That excerpts from the chapter of Control, which happens um, when the first, when well, we first see the Jeeps' Muldoon goes down to the garage to retrieve a weapon from his unmarked armory something else we don't see in the film. And just like that, with one sentence, the Sahara Jeep got its stripe, uh, something fans that never read the book would never even know about. One other fascinating scene takes place in Hammond's bungalow between the man himself and Henry Wu, in a chapter titled version 4.4. There's a few great discussions throughout the novel. They all seem to be condensed down into the lunchroom scene for the movie. But in this chapter, Wu is trying to explain the animals in Jurassic Park are too real and he wants to replace the entire stock with a new version of the animals, slower and more in line with public perception. These are themes we see throughout the entire series, and it all began in Jurassic Park. It has offered up of a little bit of an explanation as to the various design changes throughout the series, and Wu's character in Jurassic World is closer to his novel, Namestay, and not so much the film version. The novel also shows us a lot more of this in the than we see in the film. Hammond's bungalow, Safari Lodge, herbivore feeding sheds, are all missing from the final film except for a line on a computer screen or control panel. It's those little references to the novel that I love. So in conclusion, if you take anything out of the episodes discussing the novel, the first and second parts, let's get out there and get yourself a copy and read the book because it is fantastic um, and every fan should have already read it. Easy to find, go digital, download a copy or go on eBay and get a uh, physical copy. I've been Yama Brad from the Jurassic Business Podcast, sharing my thoughts with you, Jurassic Community. What I love so much about that first novel.
2: Hey, it's Kekoa. I am um, a long-time listener to the podcast, a first-time caller. Um, uh, so, for the Jurassic Park, from the Toron to. The fifth iteration, I think that part of the book is really, really good. I actually read the book once now, and now I'm reading it again for the podcast. Um, so, I think that... Th- one of my, fav- my favorite part definitely, from the... In between that, or in that... In the middle of the book is definitely the T-Rex escape scene, where it, it, it attacks the cars, um, I noticed that they're not Ford Explorers, I, I don't remember what they are, um, I can't, can't think of it, but, yeah, they're not Ford Explorers, like, in the movie, um, and the, it's funny that the kids' ages are swapped, and, um, yeah, I just don't like Lex's character definitely in the book. Um, But honestly, I think Tim is better in the book than in the movie. Um, That's just my opinion. Maybe because I'm 11 too. uh, And I feel more to that character. I can feel more of that character. Um, But yeah, uh, Nedry, that chapter was very... Uh, very different from the book. They put it, like, I don't remember, the Dalophosaurus was, like, nine feet tall in there? Which, I guess, that's the actual size. Um, in the movie, they swapped it out for, like, a three feet tall or something? Um, yeah, I think that this part was really cool, and, uh, um... The tour, I like how they go in so much detail with Dr. Wu's character and that lab sequence where they're showing how they make the dinosaurs and all the supercomputers and everything. Um, I really like that part. I wish they put that in the movie. They just got a quick, a quick little cameo of Dr. Wu in the, in the, um, in, in the book or in the movie, I'm sorry, um, but in the book, he plays a much bigger character, and I'm glad that they kind of fixed that with Jurassic World, but, um, I, I really like this part because it kind of clears up how they make the dinosaurs and everything, and it goes into a lot of stuff, uh, the whole Nedry thing, the whole sabotage with Nedry and everything was really good. Um, his plan, it, it goes in depth with his plan, and it said he was more of, like, a, a little, or, not little, but more of a boyish person than, you know, we got, uh, we got Dachson here kind of person in the movie. Uh, there's a lot of similarities. I would like to talk all day about that, that second third of the book i could talk all day about it because there's so much stuff to go comparing and contrasting the book from the movie but uh uh just want to say i really liked the book um i really my uncle and i are jurassic park fans and we always talk about it when we meet up uh and he got me into the book, I was into the movies, I'm, I, I've been, as long as I can remember, I like the Jurassic Park movies. But when I read the book, it was like a whole new experience that was way better. Or, not way better, but it was way different from what we got in the first one. It, and maybe, hopefully, um, I'm not putting anything bad on the first Jurassic Park movie. Just, I feel like, maybe if we got a three hour or something, a longer remake of the Jurassic Park movie, or maybe, like, a miniseries on Netflix or something, that was, um, retelling the book, like, as if they used the book as a script, not just based off the book. I think that would be cool. So, um, there's other- uh, I know- Uh, there's other submissions, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop here, but, um, keep doing your podcast, uh, I really like it, and I, um, and I will probably call back for the third, the the third segment, the last segment, so, um, yeah, Bye.
3: Hello, it's Simon here, and here are a few of my thoughts of the middle section of the Jurassic Park novel. I'll try to condense it into a few thoughts as possible. The first part that I want to talk about is Nedry's death, and I, I really enjoyed this part because it almost felt first person at times, and you could feel that fear and that that puzzlement that Nedry was going through. And it just, it creates a tenseness where you were like, oh, and you knew what was going to happen, but again... It was just so well written. that it, it, it was it was quite scary. And the next part that I want to talk about is where the juvenile T-Rex uh, kills Ed Regis. And again, the way it was written from Alan and Lex and Tim's perspective of looking down and watching it. And just before that, hearing from Ed's point of view of why he went the way he went was just amazing. I loved that, that the juvenile was playing with them and knocking them over and picking them up. And you can, even from afar, you could tell that Ed thought, oh, he might get away from, get away here. He was edging towards the jungle, but it wasn't to be. And it was just, it was it was great to listen, to read the next part and probably my favourite part. And the reason it's my favourite part is because it transported me back to reading it for the first time when I was about seven or eight. And my mum bought it for me as a novel on holiday. And it was the part where they recount the dinosaurs on the computer after they changed the algorithm. And it, it just reminds me of being young and thinking, wow, that's amazingly clever. Listen, uh, reading it again. And I was just like, wow, I knew it was coming. I knew it was there cause it stuck with me even from all those years ago, but still thinking that's just, it's just so clever for them to, to be for the whole park to fall down on one basic little error such as that. And, um, Anyway, for that, they're my thoughts for now. So thank you and I'll see you next time.
7: Bye. Hi, Ben. This is Bill from the UK division of the Jurassic Park Motorpool. I really enjoyed listening to the first episode on the first third of the novel, uh, particularly the paleontological perspectives from Garrett and Sabrina. This is only my second time reading the book but watched the movie many, many more times. Uh, Although it's great to have some additional characters like Ed Regis or have different characters interacting like Gennaro and Arnold, I think the movie did a more compelling job of building the tension and the story with less human characters and less dialogue between them. Uh, The chapters in the control room I found could kind of drag a little in this section. One thing that stood out to me uh, this time reading around the book was the many themes that were mentioned in this part but were not picked up or included until later movies and particularly Jurassic World. So Tim and Lex's parents were getting divorced which turns into Grey and Zach's parents in Jurassic World. Um, Ed Regis saying that the, eventually they'd uh, like to drive among the dinosaurs as they do in the gyrospheres and individual animals that were tracked via the motion sensors in the novel, uh, but being tracked by implants in Jurassic World. So I guess it was reassuring realisation that details from the original novel were being carried forward into the new franchise. Um, Really enjoying the podcast so far and very much looking forward to the third instalment. Love the detail that you guys go into and the analysis between uh, the comparison of the movie and the book. So yeah, really looking forward to part number three.
4: Hello again, this is Brady from Monterey, California. The tour of the park is definitely my favorite part of the book. I finally got to read both novels several years after I saw the movies when I was a kid, so in some ways this part of the book was a bit of a shock with how different it appears in the movies. Now that I'm many years into my love of the Jurassic Park movie franchise, I almost see this part of the book as a pseudo-sequel to the movie in a lot of the same ways that Jurassic World was to the original. More stories and more content. Better yet, the novel dives deeper into the science and attempted control of the park that was touched on in the movies, things like the lysine contingency and how the park systems function from the control room. Of course, this is where Crichton starts to fully build out the ideas that he touched on in the first third of the novel. Humans are not infallible, yet we are so sure of ourselves that we believe ourselves to be. This really comes down to my favorite scene in this section of the book, finding the velociraptor egg fragment. The staff have built systems intended to actually fool them about the population on the island because they believed that their genetic control of the animals was absolute. There couldn't possibly be more dinosaurs on the island, so they never accounted for them. Malcolm's quick understanding of what has happened and his rapid dismantling of everything that the control room staff thought they knew is wonderful to read. It's the big I told you so moment to Malcolm. Only in the movie does he back that up with, Boy, do I hate being right all the time.
1: Hi again, Ben and Brad, Chris here from the UK and the IndyCast here. I'm happy to be back with a few more words as we all continue to read Michael Crichton's original Jurassic Park novel. It's great to be in the meat and teeth of the book now, and it isn't disappointing in both excitement and terror. Tim and Alexis arrive, and I thought their film counterparts were similarly drawn, with a few skills swapped round maybe. But another thing early on in this section that seemed spot on to me between the film and the movie was the description of the mosquito under the microscope with the JP scientist extracting the blood for dino DNA. I found myself playing a bit of a detective from then on going over the pages as I read this time too and I loved finding links to other Jurassic Park movies grinning at the mention of Owens and Harding at one point. This of course made me think of dinosaur behaviourist Sarah from The Lost World and both Nick Van and of course Grady from later films in the series. For some reason I thought it was really interesting that Dennis Nedry was actually on the tour itself in the book rather than already on the island but I grinned reading Malcolm's lines of how they can be sure that all dinosaurs were indeed female. It kind of is a character signpost of Ian Malcolm himself so I thought it apt that they kept this in the movie. Talking of the movie script Indiana Jones 4 scribe, David Kep did a deft job of adapting this novel, I think. And I really loved how, again, in the lab scene at the beginning of the tour, all of the really important lines seemed unaltered when it came to the film version. Of course, Dr. Wu does have the lines uttered by Mr. DNA, but I think it's the genius Spielbergian invention of the animated DNA strand character in the movie that lifts Crichton's words off the page and elevates it all to cinematic heights. All in all, I'm really enjoying this middle section of the Jurassic Park novel. Although I have to admit, I'm not all the way through this bigger section yet, but I'll catch up by the next final review you guys do in May. I love books which hop about between different characters' viewpoints and ones which show graphical charts in them. So Croydon's writing is really suiting my reading style so far. Well, that's about all for now. So this is Chris here from the UK signing off, but turning the next page on this continuing adventure in reading. Thanks again for running this community read and review, Ben and Brad.
6: Oh, Mr. DNA, where did you come from? From your blood. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of DNA, the building blocks of life.
2: Hey, Bride. Hey, Jen. Just wanted. Oh, this is Andrew, by the way. Just wanted to call in and say that I. Really enjoyed the second third of the book and that it was intense and I read it to my baby brothers and I think they liked liked the parts where people got hurt. They showed visible enjoyment which should worry me and uh, yeah thanks.
6: Hi, it's Jared, and I have uh, many, many thoughts and comments for this middle third of the novel, and I'll try my best to condense them all into just a few things I really want to talk about for this session. First, I absolutely love all the details Michael Crichton dives into about the animals, the backstories of the main park staff, the science of how they would splice and edit the DNA to recreate dinosaurs, and the references to errors have I mean, they'd have to correct with updated versions to the park's population. And uh, conversations about chaos theory and the quote-unquote Malcolm effect. I love the discussions about observed behaviors and biology of the animals in the park and the mysteries and ambiguities as to why they are like that. Are they behaving uh, the way that they, I mean, that the real dinosaurs would have behaved? Or are these behaviors and um, and other issues or anomalies, and just how many um, are I mean would would those be due to how Wu and his team had spliced their DNA together, such as uh, the errors they referenced above. Um, I love the references of how they haven't been able to recreate the like things like the microbiota biota, uh, for the dinosaur GI tracts, and uh, that's <clears throat> the reason for the copies to have been bred. Uh, for the waste removal to accommodate that. I also wonder, and given the abilities uh, demonstrated later on by uh, Clarence um, near the end of the book, spoiler, just how often Muldoon, Harding, and the other park staff may have only been yards or maybe even a a few mere feet away from some of these wild-born raptors without ever realizing it. And I would suspect that the the uh, myosaurs and hypsilophton herds likely would have had multiple nests that the wild raptors would have been definitely been raiding, or able to raid, and sustain themselves on, hence why the computers only tallied a single new uh, animal for either species because basically you may have had many nests that were completely raided altogether so so basically like I mean, that one new Maya and hips left on each could have been just the sole survivor out of a few dozen babies that could have been eaten. It also begs the question whether several of the juvenile Mayasaurs they saw on the park tour were in fact the animals that the staff had released versus maybe wild-born offspring that were intermixed with them. And also, the other thing that I I wonder about, too, is whether or not any of the wild-born offspring of these other species may have had some of the same abilities that uh, uh, Clarence will later demonstrate near the end of the book that we just never had the chance to see, and whether or not that could have also skewed uh, the uh, system's ability to properly tally these other um, wild-born animals appropriately because maybe it couldn't detect them. And also, I do find it um, a little funny, too. Like, when the, the computers were tallying the new population counts, well, how they had, like, the little question marks for the version numbers. Because, I mean, given that, like, I mean, the animals out in the park they're breeding are most certainly going to be, like, say, the raptors' was version 3.0, shouldn't all the new raptors still fall under that version number? unless hypothetically maybe the previous version like maybe 2.9 that they may have had in the park had somehow reproduced without anyone detecting maybe just maybe the any surviving 2.9 offspring could possibly been interbreeding with the 3.0 offspring that could be an interesting uh little twist right there and also i I do wonder if Nedry's relative youth in the novel played in, I mean, into his arrogance and his belief of how his theft would have succeeded. I mean, he clearly had underestimated the level of, of the reactions of Arnold and Muldoon to the collapse of the park systems. What would Nedry have believed would, would be awaiting him if he had re- managed to return to the control room on his own? Within five minutes, security knew he wasn't uh, within the building anymore. And a few a workers saw him enter the garage. And on top of that, he took the only gas powered, the only other gas powered Jeep on the island, which also had, um, while well, the power was cut, which also happened to have Muldoon's little rocket launcher that he um, had, uh, well, sort of um, put into the car for emergency, uh, into the Jeep for emergency reasons. And I also do love that almost. Uh, that near perfect timing kind of moments that were well, that were kind of set up where it's like um, where Harding and Sattler almost found Nedry's body hours or er- like hours earlier than they would have later on, or how um, and like just by following the compies, uh on their way. Well, later that I mean, on the night that they were driving back to the visitor center. And also, you gotta love how, or even when Arnold uh, turned the camera away from the sauropod maintenance shed to examine, to help uh, survey the damage to the Soropod uh, fences, which, I mean, if he hadn't moved the camera, maybe they would have seen Grant and the kids that much earlier. And also, <clears throat> I'm still kind of bugged that uh, they didn't have, like, emergency radios or, like, or, like, little radio relays, like, further interlaced throughout the park. I mean, given all the interference that they were having from, like, say, the storm or maybe other elements of the environment. But uh, then again, Hammond did uh, get much of Muldoon's armory uh, requisition, so that might actually answer that particular question. Also, on a side note about the Dilophosaurs in Jurassic Park... Which I found very interesting. Uh, the pro—I mean, given the procompsognathids have a venomous bite, and coupled with the phylogenetic leanings of the dollofsaurus, that I mean, of dollofsaurus that has persisted until very recently um, may have some very interesting implications for the novel's own paleo lore. I mean, in the late 1980s, when Gregory S. I mean, I mean, Gregory S. Paul originally had classified both dollofsaurus and procompsognathids. Within uh, the family Silurus, I mean Celophysidae. so it's um, so it's like Crichton may have set up a scenario in which Venom could have been a snapomorphy to the Silufis, I mean to the themselves, and whether or not uh, he deliberately set that up has it has been a very intriguing question for me personally too. And now for um, <clears throat> some of the uh, compare and contrast to the films. I mean, I do love chapter uh, version 4.4 4, and how it's essentially the seeds for the main plot for Jurassic World where people don't real don't actually want reality. They want to see their expectations and entertainment or big, scaly, terrifying monsters with, quote-unquote, more teeth in the movies rather than seeing the animals as they may have actually been. I would also, I mean, I would have liked um, to have um have uh, seen more references to the um, problems of a major theme park and zoo. Um, well, then, I mean, to, in the actual film, more than just uh, that one line from Ray Arnold and the sick triceratops scene. And of course, I'd, I would have always loved if uh, the film had actually incorporated much more of the breeding plot. I mean... Uh, I mean, then just like uh, Malcolm's Life Finds a Way dialogue moments in, um, in the lab. And also the one nest that Grant and Lex and Tim happened to find out um, in the wilds of the park. In the novel, it became like an urgent situation, like halfway through the book with, um, great, with uh, greater stakes. Because I mean, like as seen with the tour group spotting the juvenile raptors stowing away on the ship to the mainland. I mean, like, like there wasn't that much of the same kind of urgency for, I mean, that the, or I mean, that much significance that uh, the breeding dinosaurs had in the not, in the film versus what the larger implications were in the books. I also found a, like a little interesting little side note here on how, um, Novel Rexy appears to be much stronger than her film counterpart, such as actually picking up and I mean the tour jeep and throwing it some distance, which we did not see her film version do. And also another interesting little compare and contrast is, I mean, between the novel version and the film version of the parks, I have to point out is um, I mean, is in regards to its dinosaur population. I mean, with an expected like two hundred thirty animals, I mean, you were at least guaranteed to see tons of animals on the tour, whereas um, the film park, w- I mean, the film park was very sparsely populated. I mean, which was also further supported by the engine list from the uh, D- DPG for a park that was supposed to open w- up um, next year, as Hammond put it. So much for our first tour: two no shows and one sick Triceratops. In certain re- respects, the film park was more underprepared for tourists than the novel park. I mean, sure, just the chance to see even one living, breathing dinosaur would still draw in massive numbers of tourists in 1994, but unless they're going to transplant many, many more dinosaurs from Sorna to Nublar within less than a year, they were disappointing many of those tourists who'd visit the park and not, and possibly not see anything on the initial tours, which was kind of what happened in the film. In the, in the case of the novel... You, I mean, the, the novel park, you're still guaranteed to see many, many different dinosaurs in most exhibits. Even if you miss seeing one of the T-Rexes yourself, you have another dozen species that can make up for that. Well, anyway, that's... Um, I mean, there's a lot more that I'd love to talk about from, just, from this section of the book. But that'll go on and on. Um, so, I'll just leave this here for now. And, well... Until next time, um, thanks again for hosting this uh, book club. And well, until next time, it, uh, Jared, bye. It's
10: fantastic to have all your thoughts and opinions. And thank you for the kind words. Thank you also to everybody else that's reading along with us and listening in to this episode of the podcast. And if you've not yet sent in an audio message or email, please send them to Jurassic Park book Club at gmail.com and we'll be sure to get them on the air for the next episode. I'm Ben from Jurassic Site B, and I'll be back on the 10th of May.
0: Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. Thank you so much to Ben uh, for presenting the Jurassic Park Book Club yet again this week. And, uh... We are halfway through the ride of reviewing Jurassic Park the novel. That's crazy. Where well, I guess we're over halfway now. Um, there's only one episode left. It's going to be a very, very fun conclusion to the Jurassic Park novel series next month. But uh, like I said, of course, once we finish that, that means we do get to move on to other books in this series. And uh, as always, though, before we get ahead of ourselves, Ben always does a wonderful job hosting this segment, so I am very, very excited to hear uh, how he closes it out next month. But of course, a huge thank you also goes out to Dave and Stephen uh, for discussing the book with Ben and I. Um, I. I just love that we we all attacked this book in very different ways, and I think we we came to this book uh, came. Uh, came out of this book and came to this book with very different experiences with the novel so i i think that was great to get those those different perspectives and uh and of course don't miss dave's prior appearances on the podcast in episode 246 and 192 and steven has been on um i think he's been on two recent episodes of the jurassic world camp cretaceous breakdown i think it was episode one and two Um, Plus episodes 119, 130, 151, and a handful of other bonus episodes and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, and also head to our show notes where you'll find some links for Dave and Stephen as well. So thank you so much to both of them for joining us this week. And uh, again, we'll catch up with the book club on May 10th with the review, the conversation, and all those comparisons like we did this week to the film. And of course, the listeners' thoughts on the... The final segment of Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. So, as always, we do have an email address for you guys to send over any kind of written thoughts, or even better, some recorded thoughts. If you want to, just pick up your phone, uh, record a little voice memo there, and email them over to Jurassic Park Book Club at gmail.com. It's pretty, pretty straightforward email address: Jurassic Park Book Club at gmail.com and we would love to hear all of your thoughts and feelings on the fifth iteration through to the end of the novel so i am very very excited i cannot wait to hear all of your thoughts and the people that we have on the next episode so stay tuned uh, for more information on that but that is it the final section is coming up and i'm very excited about that so please get your thoughts in uh before it's too late before it's too late, because we really do want to hear from you guys. So, um, that about wraps it up. It's been such a long episode, so I'm not going to do the typical reviews and all that stuff like that, but again please leave us a review over on iTunes give us a five star review if you want to write something and uh, I will typically read those on the episodes try to save them for shorter episodes but uh, I, I love the longer ones and I know you guys do too so thank you so much uh, thank you for listening stay safe out there be kind to everybody and uh, we'll see you all next week I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to myself for the outro Take it away. Saddle off. Let's get this movable feast on the way. Be sure to give us a follow over on Twitter, at Jurassic Park Pod, and myself, at Brad Jost. Also on Facebook and Instagram, at Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to join the Jurassic Park Podcast group on Facebook. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So be sure to follow along. Also, don't miss our live streams, Toy hunts, reviews, in-depth bonus content, gameplay, event and theme park coverage, and much more on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read your reviews at the end of most episodes, so be sure to spare no expense. Find us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com, where you'll find today's episode show notes, articles, contributor bios, and so much more. If you want to get a hold of us, you can fill out the contact form on our website. Or send emails to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. We're always looking for new segments, contributors, mailbag submissions, or anybody who just wants to say hello. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Make sure to be kind to everybody and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Drop what you're doing and leave now.